Assembly Education Committee. Item one is apologies. Clark, are we aware of any other apologies? Um, so Nicola is going to be delayed and Robin has entered an apology, Chair. Okay, thank you. Item two, Chairperson's Business. Can I inform members that the committee held an informal meeting with the Northern Ireland Teaching Council on examinations and GTCNI and a few other associated matters? Can I refer members to a tabled note on the meeting and ask members if they are content to note and write to the Department of Education regarding the movement of the disclosure and debarring service from the Teachers' Pension Agency to the Department of Education in England and seek assurances regards any impact that that would have on operations in Northern Ireland. Agreed? Agreed, Chair. Thank you. Can I ask members if they're also content to write to the Northern Ireland Teaching Council expressing the committee's thanks to all workers in the education sector. Agreed? Agreed, Chair. Thank you. Can I also advise members that suggestions re-content reduction for GCSEs were made at the informal meeting and these are tabled for the committee's briefing from SAIA. There's also a ministerial statement on the North-South Ministerial Council education sector um, was uh, submitted to the Assembly yesterday. I refer members to the Minister's statement in tabled papers and check that members are content to note. Agreed? Great. Thank you. Agreed. Item three is draft minutes. Can I refer members to draft minutes of the committee meeting on the 30th of June at page six of your meeting packs and seek your agreement that the minutes are a complete and accurate record of proceedings. Agreed? Agreed. Agreed. Thank you. Thank you. Item four, matters arising. There are no matters arising. Item five is correspondence. Can I refer members to page 15, where we have 17 items of correspondence and a summary note at page 17. Can I ask the clerk to speak to the correspondence, please? Of course, Chair. Item 5.5, five, five, members on page 36 and 5.6 on page 53 are responses from AQE and PPTC indicating that they won't be available to brief the committee before recess, but are happy to do so after recess. Um, so, members, are you content uh, for the committee office to arrange a suitable date for that briefing? Yeah, thanks, Clark. Extremely yeah. disappointing that they're not available before recess and would be good to schedule that as early as possible in the new term, notwithstanding uh, the committee stage of integrated education bill um, for work programme as well. Uh, members content to agree that? Agreed. Great, thank you. Thanks, Claire. Um, item 5.7 on page 67 is correspondence from Unison regarding its campaign for universal nutritious free school meals for all children um, and attaching correspondence um, it has sent to the Minister of Education. Unison is suggesting that the committee may wish to invite um, DE officials to provide a briefing um, on this issue. Um, members, what's your view on that correspondence? Yeah, I, I think the issue of widening the eligibility for free school meals is an important one. Um, I, I would certainly be uh, keen to hear from uh, from Unison in relation to the campaign and, and DE officials in relation to any scoping that's being done to to widen the eligibility for free school meals. 
again, I'm conscious this is all subject to Ford Work Program, Clark, but um, yeah. members content with that in principle or any other views? Yes, absolutely, Chair. I would agree with that. Okay. okay. We can find out a little bit by correspondence about um, the status of the uh, holiday hunger arrangements and the holiday hunger PMB as well um, in advance. Okay. Thank you, members. Um, item 58 on page 80 is a copy of correspondence from um, the Committee on the Administration of Justice, um, and it's about the rights of EU citizens um, in light of the withdrawal agreement. Um, so members, would you be interested in seeking a briefing on the impacts on school pupils and their families of the withdrawal agreement? Agreed. Thank you. Okay, item 512 on page 87 is a copy of correspondence from the Immigration Advice Service to NICVA regarding international students and the vaccine rollout programme. Um, it seems to me that that's more um, for the Committee of the Economy members, if you're content that we would uh, refer that on to them. Okay, agreed. Thank you. Item 518 in tabled papers is a response from the EA on transition and transport arrangements for special educational needs pupils at St Mary's High School, Brawla. Um, so again, that's something that members may wish to take up um, with the witnesses this morning. But also, are you content that we refer that correspondence on to the person who raised it with us? Yeah, that, that's in tabled papers. It is. Yeah, what, do you know what page it is in tabled papers? Um, I've got item 518 um, on, let me just say. 519, I think it is, uh, table papers, page 16. Just know, Pat, you obviously raised um, this particular issue and, uh, and the committee had shared yeah. concerns. If you maybe want to take a quick glance at that, just to check there. Yeah, there's some quite interesting detail in there, actually. Um, okay, so is that agreed to... to provide that information to the person who raised the issue, yeah? Yeah, and perhaps we could, yeah. if we could include in our correspondence, you know, a, an obvious request that if if that is not to the satisfaction of the correspondent, that they would that they would come back to us. Okay. Um, that they are setting out um, assistance that's being provided to assist with transition for pupils with special educational needs but it would be good to hear back from the correspondents that, that they were satisfied with that okay thank you okay um item 519 um in table papers is a response from the minister on gtc and i um and it uh there are several appended items to that as well broadly the minister states that while the department intends to bring forward a bill um on the status of GTCNI, it appears unlikely that that would be possible within the remainder of the current assembly mandate. Um, the uh, committee was also asking for a report on, uh, on the whistleblower matters, um, and the minister has provided correspondence from the permanent secretary and the former permanent secretary to GTC, sec setting out the concerns which led to the imposition of special measures and um, explaining that it's up to the chair and the council um, to address these issues and determine um, and demonstrate that they have been addressed. Um, there's also an appended correspondence between um, former permanent secretary Derek Baker and GTCNI chair about the whistleblowing complaints which were received and investigated. And it's the department's view that those should remain um, singly um, 
at a confidential. Okay. Um, yeah, Clark, that, that, that's really concerning. And um, given the extent of the issues in GTCNI, would members be content for us to respond to the minister to ask why the a GTCNI bill will not be possible um, within the remainder of the current assembly mandate, and um, and what the impact of failing to bring that legislation forward is on on GTCNI, on governance and support for teachers and um, child protection. Yeah. Any other members want to come in on that? No, absolutely, Chair. I mean, the, the Minister should be given a clear explanation as to why this legis legislation can't progress. Okay. Okay, content to respond in that regard, Yvonne. Thanks. Sure. Yeah, the, there's... Um, the review on governance issues um, is going to be reporting to the minister at the end of the summer. Um, so the committee had already provisionally, you know, decided to schedule a briefing um, after that. Um, okay. I think that'll um, be important. Thanks, Clark. Yeah. Um, okay. Then, yeah, there's just one last um, table as well. Is correspondence from uh, Claire Flowers. <laughs> Um, stating as we requested the assistance um, that Girl Guiding Ulster and the, and the Uniform Voluntary Organisations um, are in need of um, so I mean we could forward that to the department um, if members are minded to ask for uh, attention or assistance to the voluntary outdoor centres really because they're reliant on residential stays um, to run their funded activities um, you know that's causing difficulties for them at the moment. Happy to happy to agree that. Okay. And um, uh, Clark, but it, it also makes some reference to the strategy to prevent violence against girls and young women uh, and mental health as well. So perhaps we could give you authorization to forward that to any other relevant departments as well. Thank you, Chair. Yes, the. Committee for Justice and the Women's Caucus at the very least. Thank you. So, um, other than that, members, if you're content, the, the correspondence will be disposed of as per the summary note at page 17. Agreed. Agreed. Thank you. Thanks, members. Thanks, Clark. Item six is the Integrated Education Bill. Can I refer members to a note from the committee clerk on the committee stage of the Integrated Education Bill at page 485? Draft timeline for the committee stage at 487. Draft call for evidence 489. Draft public notice 490. Draft list of stakeholders to be contacted directly on the bill at 491. A record of an informal meeting with the bill proposer on the 22nd of June at 493. Copies of the bill and explanatory and financial memorandum as introduced at 495504 and it tabled items, a set of questions on the bill for stakeholders answering the call for evidence. Can I seek the committee's view on the draft timeline for completion of the bill, the call for evidence, and the public notice? Clark, do you want to make any brief comments in relation to those items? Yeah, I mean, just broadly, members, um, the committee stage is 30 working days, and um, it begins today because second stage was passed yesterday. Um, so... 30 working days from t from today is the 12th of October. Um, 
I do expect that the committee will want to uh, ask for an extension of committee stage before the 12th of October, um, but I expect that uh, the committee should have time to finish up its work on this bill by um, mid to end November. Okay. Uh, could, I, could I come in yes. there? Uh, go ahead. Just in the light of the debate yesterday and some of the concerns that were raised about consultation, I, I think it would be sensible to extend the end date for the call for evidence, uh, given that you know it's, it's it's going to be happening over the summer. Many teachers and uh, people involved in the sector uh, will be looking forward to a well-deserved break. I, I think it would be wise, given the, the controversy that arose yesterday, to extend that call for evidence. And I'd, I'd be interested to hear what other members think on that. Okay. Yep. Yeah, sure. I just said from a logistical point of view, sorry, that um, the uh, the hosting of the, plat the citizens based platform is going to swap after the 10th of September. Um, so our bill will go through on the current platform um, and then other bills will have to go through on a new platform. And um, so there might be hiatus there uh, it's just from a practical point yeah. of view uh, before bringing other members in uh, Pat obviously just to say as well the, obviously we can take um, oral evidence after that date as, as well but bring other members in yeah chair can I come in there please yes Daniel yeah just a, I've done a lot of thinking about this uh, over the course of the last few days and I've been looking in detail at the schedule for the committee to effectively and efficiently scrutinise this bill, which it will need. Um, I do have concerns, even at this stage, that the consultation period, in my opinion, could be largely determined as being out of date, given that it is over four years old. It's 2017 when those consultations carried out. It's now 2021. Uh, also, I have concerns that the, uh, the, the, the consultation has largely been disputed now by CSSC and CTMS, and that is going to have to be addressed in the work of this committee in order to ensure that we have sufficient engagement with other key stakeholders. Uh, another thing of concern is the notes. there doesn't seem to be any place, and this is probably at the discretion of our committee, no, no place for consulting with schools or the wider general public in relation to concerns that may be had in relation to what this bill proposes in a current form. Uh, I don't think that's sufficient. And also, a little time to hear uh, stakeholders in briefing. And I made a couple of notes by looking at the time frame of where we're at. So there's only three seconds set aside have to be released. Uh, there's also, on the days that there are three sessions set aside, there are, there are action-packed days. There's quite a lot of other major items on the work agenda which would uh, distract us from what effectively we should be scrutinising, which is this bill. For instance, if you look at the members look at the 22nd of September, the 6th of October and the 20th of October, there's quite a lot of other items on the agenda. And I really think that the committee should be solely focusing on that particular item, what's at stake. The final thing there is there's only one session set aside that are the written submit, uh, and uh, there's also two other items that date as well. So I think we need to break up a bit to ensure we maximum scrutiny of this bill uh, to ensure we cover every potential avenue uh, on it. There is going to be quite a lot of holders directly both of and I, w I would like to ensure that we have brought a consultation as possible. Okay, you, you broke up a fair bit there, Daniel, but I think I think it caught most of what you were saying, um, and obviously the. The call for evidence 
Clark, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is, is a full public call for evidence. Uh, that's, the, that's the full public consultation for anyone uh, across any uh, sector and across the public to, to engage with the committee on that. And that's to which yeah. Pat refers in terms of the, the timescale for that. In terms of um, other items that are scheduled during that time, uh, Daniel, that's that's the nature of of committee stage of legislation. It will it will require adjustments in for work programs. Is that accurate as well, Clark? Yeah, and I mean this session is you know this conversation now gives me a steer for how much time we want to devote to this and how you know I can review the forward work program and the existing issues in it. I can certainly take out a lot of those. Okay. Do you have any you, you, have you any specific points in terms of I think you know, at the moment the call for evidence scheduled to close on September the tenth and the clerk I think has set out a, a very reasonable time scale of mid November for the close of the process, which is more than two months. Have you any specific comments in that regard, Daniel? I, I, I just want to ensure that we uh, have uh, sufficient time to give this the maximum that it, that it deserves, but also that the people that are affected uh, would deserve uh, and expect as well. So whilst I appreciate the clerk uh, offering that date, I still believe, given the nature of the bill and what is the, what, what's, what's on the table, uh, that that date should be cancelled and there should be regular room to move it even further if necessary. Okay. I mean, you... Those of us who attended the bill's office briefing in relation to this were clear in their emphasis. Committees will never feel like they have enough time to scrutinise a bill. That's the nature of legislation as well. But appreciate those comments. Anyone else want to come in? Just one last clarification from the Avina Chair on the, the one that's um, called for evidence closes on the 10th of September. Okay. And then the yeah. committee. Better submissions and, and finalize um, finalize that. Um, our call for evidence is that is that like the, are we asking for that from today? Then is that? Yeah, it, it will go out on Friday of this week um, and it will include that list of, um, so it will direct people to the citizens-based platform, um, which will have that list of questions that table today, um, which you can see allows people to comment on the principles of the bill broadly, you know, the policy objectives, and then individually on each clause and how it goes about attaining the policy objectives. Um, the, there's also a stakeholder list uh, in your pack, and members can add to that if there are additional specific stakeholders that the committee wants to target. Um, but as the chair said, it is a general call for evidence that's going out on Friday. The stakeholder list is at 491. It's fairly extensive. 491 of your, of your actual packs. Justin? Sure, can I second what Pat has said? And just from my own experience, uh, we've consulted with the public widely on a number of education issues, but see, once summer recess comes, you don't get the responsiveness that you would get during term time. I'm just concerned, like Pat has said, the call for evidence closing at that time, time and running through the summer period, I'm really, really concerned about the, the, the amount of evidence being returned. Um, and as Daniel has said, you know, we do need to scrutinise this very, very close, closely as a committee and we need to, to dedicate as much time as possible. It's such an important bill to be brought forward and 
there are major challenges, sorry, not challenges, there are clarifications that need to be um, brought before us all, um, which we need to find, you know, to, to interrogate a, a committee. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm just conscious that this is, we'd be wary of this being rushed through because it's such important legislation. So we need to get make sure that it is scrutinised to the level that it needs to be scrutinised. And, and I feel so strongly about that. And CCMS must be engaged as part of that process. Uh, absolutely. Um, obviously, the Education Committee survey on post-primary transfer took place during last summer. The committee agreed that and had a wholesome response to that particular piece of work. And I appreciate we're perhaps not dealing in uh, ideal circumstances here, but I, I say again, the, the Bill's office was very clear that committees will never feel like they're dealing in ideal timelines in terms of um, committee stages, which are, you know, without extension, scheduled for 30 working days. And this is a two-month call for evidence and a two-month uh, schedule for oral evidence. Is that accurate, Mark? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Chair, and could I just come back in again there? Sorry, yeah. Justin, did you want to... No, I think that you're probably going to follow up with the same issue which I'm concerned about, which is that summer period where their people are, are off, they've had a really tough time, educators have had a really tough two years, and for, to, for them to engage the level they need to engage at for this, I think that's yeah. maybe a little bit unreasonable for them to do so during the summer period. Yeah, and, and, and I would accept uh, what Justin says, given that he comes from a, a teaching family and, and he would have knowledge of that. Uh, and, I mean, that's one of the reasons I was asking uh, even earlier uh, about the timeline. And it, it does appear that we have sufficient time in the event of any slippage. So, I mean, I, I accept it might mess the timetable up a bit, but there's certainly enough time. I was concerned initially that there was a very tight schedule uh, in, in terms of getting this through, but, but we have enough time. So, uh, I mean, there, there were some... Uh, it, it did get a bit hot and heavy yesterday about the level of consultation uh, and the belief that some people weren't consulted properly uh, and weren't spoken to recently. So, I mean, in order to allay those fears, I mean, I see, I see no cogent reason why we shouldn't extend the, the timeline for the, the call for evidence. And, and I would support Justin on that. Yeah, and okay. Chair. Sorry, Daniel, if you could just indicate when you want to come in, thanks. Yeah, Daniel, just, go ahead. Thank you, Chair. Just to supplement that. Uh, in terms of the consultation period, I do have concerns because schools are, the, the consultation goes out this week for the call for evidence, basically, uh, and uh, schools are already closed. Uh, the date is the 10th of September, which leaves insufficient time for schools. Now, this committee have been hugely critical of the Department for Education and the Education Authority for allowing insufficient time for schools to respond to anything they send out. I don't want the same criticism of this committee because we're uh, very aware uh, of the frustration that causes in schools. And for that reason, I, I, out of complete respect to schools, and they will be absolutely a big player in, in responding to this, uh, th that deadline of the 10th of September absolutely needs to be widened. Okay, so again, for points of clarification, this education committee conducted an, as a public survey 
during the summer months last year. Okay, I'm just going to put this on the record. Um, it was responded to by 8,500 people. Okay, many teachers. Uh, would have been more teachers if the Minister for Education had have permitted us to send it to every teacher via the C2K network. Regrettably, he didn't. Um, and that gave us a, a, a rich and a timely uh, set of information to inform our deliberations in relation to that particular issue. The consultation on the Integrated Education Bill was 12 weeks long. It had 800 responses and it engaged with CSSC and CCMS. I, as far as I'm aware, CSSC and CCMS are operational over the summer. Um, but if people, and we have the complication that I was unaware of until today that Clark has raised in relation to the platform that would be used in relation to this. But um, I am a single member of this committee. So what is the specific proposal in relation to the call for evidence and how that would impact or otherwise upon the timescale present for the committee? As I say, at the moment, that is a two-month call for evidence and a two-month, if not slightly longer, committee stage when the statutory stage for committee stage without extension is 30 working days. Chair, can I just say I share Daniel's views there totally. I made a lot of sense, I thought, but that's just right. We had to right going over it all again. Thank you. Trying to establish what those views are so we can get specific can we to a vote, Chair? Chair, sorry, can we just put to a vote? What are you Extending voting on, Justin? What are you voting on? Extending the call for evidence. To when? Um, yeah. Let's go, Daniel. I think, Justin, it needs to be uh, late October, November. That's Please. ridiculous, Daniel. Absolutely ridiculous. Are you trying to kill this bill by other means now? Chair, this is personal. This is we are a scrutiny authority of the of, of legislation. We need to be looking at this in great detail. I understand your party have an attachment to this bill, but we need to ensure that all of the key stakeholders are listened to and engaged with. The consultation is four year old. This is a bill, this is law, it's legislation, it's transformational and and it needs to we need to be broad in our uh, uh, engagement with key stakeholders that this, this affects, and it affects quite a lot of people. I don't believe that September is sufficient. I don't even believe, to be totally honest, that early or mid-October is sufficient. We need to ensure that we give people ample room and opportunity to engage effectively, and schools are currently closed when this actually goes out. Which was the same case for the committee survey last summer. Okay, but so what's the proposal, Daniel? Survey is a survey. This is law now, and we're scrutinising it. And okay. I have what's, what's your proposal? Member of this committee, my my proposal to this committee is that we extend until the end of October. So a four-month call for evidence. Well, chair, you can't. I include Clark is trying to come in. Chair, you can't include the summer when schools are closed. With respect, I mean that, that is not a that is not an actual precedent in relation to consultation. But I, I accept that's what you're putting forward, Daniel Clark. Did, did I see you wanted to come in there? I think you're muted. Um, yeah, I was just going to say that um, given the transition between these platforms and the fact that we're going into assembly recess, um, you know, if the start date is is not this. Uh, Friday, because the alternative platform won't have been started out, then perhaps the proposal needs to centre on the length of time that the committee wants the call for evidence to last, rather than the date. 
So the call might go out at some other time in the summer. Have, have we not? Have we not agreed the the call for evidence issues on the yeah. 10th of July? We have on the basis that it would complete then on the tenth of September on the current platform. Okay. But but if we miss the current platform, then a new platform will have to be set up, and the issue won't be immediate. And it's just so I clearly understand this, Clark. So the, the issue is that the, the current platform, that there's some uh, concern or, or that the current platform cannot extend beyond the 10th of September. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Can I, can I come in here? I'm sure. Okay. Uh, yeah. Just, I, think, you know, I know we shouldn't, but we're sort of, I got caught up in a wee bit of social media last night and I was watching where some of this debate seemed to be feeling like it was going. I don't believe that anybody is looking to kill the bill. I think um, there's, a, there is a reasonable, there's a reasonable point here to be made. I think perhaps to extend it to the point that Daniel is maybe just, it might, it might be good rationale. I think there's a, there's a halfway house here. I do see a rationale here and that I'm putting my commission hat on and I'm thinking about the, the, the Justin's point about educators and, and, and those people that are working there and working through COVID and those issues. I think uh, to go out now, uh, it might just put them under a little bit of pressure at this stage. I think if it is to go out maybe in a couple of weeks' time, um, that, I think that's fair because educators do return to work in early August. They don't return at the end of August, to be fair, and they've got preparations to make, um, whether that be through the departments and so on. So I think maybe um, if there was a couple of weeks on it, I think a halfway house here would be fair. Um, but I want, to kill it. I want to kill this because I did not like what I was reading. Uh, and, and there was parties pitting themselves against each other, and, and it's, it, it, was, it was quite kind of gross. There was really good comments made on this bill. This is a good bill, but it does need to be changed. We will uh, put our shoulder to the wheel with regard to it, making sure it is a good bill, um, and that's what this committee will do. Um, I, I think that, that some of the, the yeah, some of the, some of the tone was unhelpful from from some political figures last night, and I didn't enjoy it. I didn't engage. Um, if anybody thinks they're going to accuse me. And not you, Chair, by the way, not you at all. I, I, Robbie, I'm completely unaware of, of yeah. genuinely completely unaware of what you're referring to, so I can't really comment, sorry. No, no that's fair, Chair. I just want to make sure it's not nothing to do with you. It really isn't. Uh, I think this could be a good bill. I said it last night, and we'll not go in it today. But I think, to be fair, um, I'm very aware from the completions perspective in terms of um, the people that throughout COVID have had their shoulder to the wheel. I think a couple of weeks to put this in, maybe we, we and take evenings needing this, if this was to be then instead of this Friday, um, then perhaps if this was towards the, um, the end of July, maybe that this one out the call for evidence for the start of August, and then factor that into the date um, for completion. So maybe instead of the 10th of September, it brings it forward to either the end of September, start of October. Um, and that, that certainly gives those people that are going to be uh, asked for, for to provide uh, evidence that little window of opportunity to get a few weeks break. Because when this this is a very important subject, a lot of people, if this goes out this week, um, um, it's going to put those people under pressure. But I accept um, the need to do it, Chair. So I think okay. the tone we're bringing back in here, I think we will do this. Okay, so the, obviously the, the committee has agreed the call for evidence for the, the 10th of July, then there's maybe two separate issues here. Then there's the, the start date and the end date. I, I, I'm i not sure changing the start date is, you know, materially changes the, the, the pressure or the time people have under which to respond to it. So I, I, I don't see why I would change that. However, um, 
and there is a complication with the current platform, there's obviously a, a mood to extend the call for evidence, although no one spoke to me about that in advance of the meeting today, which might have been helpful, um, given my availability to everyone. Um, the it part, Is there a way for us to proceed with the call for evidence and extend on, on a different platform um, from the 10th of September to the, the end of September? Um, yes, Chair, the, if the committee is content that a call for evidence should be of two months duration um, and not in July, then uh, we will endeavour to put out the call for evidence at the end of July and the mem members will have their responses back at the end of September. Can, can we? I, I'm, I'm trying to find some sort of um, reasonable extension and end date to call for evidence. I don't. I'm just to say clarification, Clark. I'm not. I'm not sure why we would have to change the start date if there are people who are in a position to respond. Why would we curtail the start date, given that second stage has passed and that the 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 working days on the committee stage of the bill has commenced? Is it? I'm, ha I'm happy to hear from other members, but practically speaking, Clark, just to check, the call for evidence could be started on the 10th of July and extended to the end of September. Practically speaking, that's something that I can't guarantee just now. I would have the end of the end period would have to be negotiated with the current host of the platform. That's the only reason I can't completely uh, confirm that just now. Okay. Well, look, I mean, can I can I check in with members that? Can, can I try and get some consensus that changing the start date? I, I don't understand the rationale for changing the start date. There's um, obviously a mood to change the, the end date, and, and I'm trying to seek a consensus around the end of September for that. Uh, yeah. Who wants to come in? Robbie wanted to come in first, and then Daniel. So the reason I suggested that was because listening to the clerk, that was the easiest way of actually changing the end date. So we can agree now that if we moved the start date, it, it naturally change, you know, it gives people a little bit more space. It changes the, the, the end date. By doing one thing and agreeing one thing, we get both. That's all it okay. was. As, as, okay. as the clerk said, it's harder to do it the other way. Just you know. Okay. 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 So okay. And does that does that get us beyond the issue of the change of platform, Clark? Um, if we were to go out in July and and come back at the end of September, is it? Yeah. Um, yes, we expect to have the new platform up and running in time to go out at the end of July. Okay, so what? just to try and get us towards a, a proposal then, happy to bring other members in as well and other views. What What are those dates we're, you're discussing there then, Clark? Um, the end of July, Chair, and the end of September. Okay. Robbie, you content with that? Yeah, Friday, Friday, is it a Friday then, evening? So it was a Friday, Friday the 30th, for instance, yeah. I propose that, Chair, and then... Okay. Any other members want to come in, conscious that our time scales for the meeting today are now out the window? Go ahead. Yeah. Chair, I'm indifferent in relation to the actual start date, but I do recognise the issue with the date. And the, the, certainly the 10th of September is a no-go. I think most members are probably in that place. Um, but I don't believe that the end of September is going to be sufficient. I think that there is some wriggle room in the middle of October, even the 10th of October, which gives a month. I'd be more content there uh, than uh, the end of September. When you say a month, 
a month from what date? A, a month a month of an extension from their from the original date of the tenth of September. If that was moved to the tenth of October. Okay, uh, despite September giving a full thirty working days outside of July and August. Yes, no chair, but I just recognise that there's quite a lot of people that are wanting to engage in this process. Okay, we had originally scheduled two months month apart for the actual oral evidence stage and del deliberation stages. So, hi. Chair, could I just come in there? Uh, yeah, go ahead, Pat. Yeah, and, and, and again, I'm sort of agnostic on the, the start date. I think whatever easiest for officials to deal with is probably uh, what we should aim for. I, uh, but I agree with Daniel that it's the, the finish date that we should focus on. And, and I tend to agree uh, with Daniel, anything around the middle of October would probably be a good date. Uh, and and I, I would tend to support that 10th of October that Daniel has proposed. We just to be clear, members, you know, you can say what you want about your intentions here. September, we had originally set aside September, October. Clark, you can bring some facts to this for me. September, October, mid-November for uh, the stage after call for evidence. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so two and a half months. Okay, so if you what you're proposing mid-October, Daniel. 10th of October, Chair. Mid-October. Um, and then are you proposing that we have two and a half months as we were trying to have for actual substantive consideration and, and oral evidence after that? Yeah, Chair. What I'm proposing is to ensure that all key stakeholders have the opportunity to properly uh, uh, participate in this. This is it affects directly a number of sectors in a very big way, and it also affects a lot of our all of our schools. So it's very important that they have sufficient time. And I think the tenth of September, tenth of October, uh, is uh, the key, in my opinion. Now that's okay. you, you might not agree on that, but that's my proposal to the committee. I'm not agreeing or disagreeing at this moment in time, and the the rhetoric is is clear. I I, I support the principles of of what you're saying. We need to try and find a way to facilitate that in a way that will actually allow that to happen. So October 10th, um, one month takes you to November, one month after that takes you to December, and then you're into the Christmas holidays. So we could be looking at completing committee stage in January on, on your schedule, Daniel, which would present an extreme likelihood of the bill not passing through stages of the assembly. Chair, with respect, I can understand what you're saying, but we need to ensure that this committee effectively and fully scrutinises this bill. That is what my objective is, nothing else. There's quite a lot of other sectors in education and schools that are directly affected as a result. We cannot simply squash things into time frames because it's convenient to do so. We need to ensure that we maximise our scrutiny role as members of this committee. There's, no, there's nothing about convenience here, Daniel. I'm just checking if just checking you're aware that this time scale makes it highly unlikely that the bill will return back to for the assembly stages. Chair, I can't, I can't speculate around that. But what I can what I can ensure is that the people that want to engage in this process will have ample opportunity to do so by extending the date to the 10th of October. Okay, Robbie, you want to come in? 
Yeah, please, Kevin. Maybe get the, I mean, this weekend here with regard to the next stages after committee stage in terms of um, because we've we've seen a number of uh, exact all the executive uh, legislation was going through piece of legislation through recently, um, uh, and they haven't taken a whole lot of time. So just I, I think that both points are well made, um, and if it is our ambition to get this bill through in the mandate, what is the squeeze on the other side, um, Irving, with regard to those? Um, what needs to happen after committee stage? What is it? Could you project a time scale for the time stages? I, I can't project a time scale because there are so many factors. I mean, there's a lot of executive legislation coming. There's a lot of other private members bills um, coming through, and those will all um, be competing for plenary time in the house. Um, so, what are, what, are, what, are, what are the statutory time frames between each? So, if, if there was no other legislation. What's the minimum? Um, yeah, standard orders um, provides just five days between state between stages, um, a minimum. And normally there's a fortnight um, to allow um, amendments to be tabled for each amending stage, um, and then it can, yeah. Sometimes sometimes final stage can be very quick. Then after the amending stage, if there aren't any any problems with that. Um, but yeah, you're just. There's there's a lot of a lot of material coming to the house at the same time. Robbie, yeah. That's yeah, I have one myself. Okay, Diane, I think you wanted to come in there. Yeah, no, just to say, uh, first of all, apologies. I just could not get on, and I really had to um, download Starleaf and everything. That is a very big challenge for someone like me. So um, the I just caught the end of that around the the uh, call for evidence. Obviously, to call for evidence uh, in the middle of July in the education sector is is a problem. I, mean, I think we all recognise that 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 is an issue. Yet, I agree with Daniel that this is um, a bill that will have far-reaching implications across and all of the sectors in education. So I would support the idea that we allow the evidence call um, to go to about uh, the middle of October um, and then uh, have time to consider and scrutinise. Okay. okay, thanks, Dan. Okay, Yvonne, so the proposal is that the call for evidence deadline be changed to October the 10th. Is that, that clear? Yes, and either way, regardless of the platform, regardless of the issue date, then... Checking with the members there in terms of what the proposal is for the extension of the call for evidence. Daniel, is he proposing October the 10th? Yes, Chair, my proposal to the committee is uh, October the 10th to ensure uh, ample opportunity for all stakeholders to engage with this process. Okay, and then Clark, what was that? What would that mean for the? How does that change the draft uh, timeline for committee stage that you have presented today? Um, we can do the other business before the tenth of October, and then exclusively do committee stage after that. Chair. Um, okay. Do you? Um, the, the draft timeline is at page. Um, sorry. Page four eight seven of our normal packs. Yeah. Um, let's see. Okay. Uh, so it was scheduled then for the thirtieth of November, working off the tenth of December. Okay. So that that would all just be forecast 
um, approximately 30 days then, yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. I'll, okay. Yeah. I'll have to come, I'll have to work out the 30 days again from the new date, Chair, okay. and I'll advise the committee in writing about that, okay. Okay. Do you need any other decisions, Clark, other than the extension of the call for evidence to the 10th of October? Um, just uh, that, to know that members are content with that list of questions um, for stakeholders, so quite generic. And also, do members want to add any um, stakeholders to the stakeholder list to target? Um, there was the previous forum wasn't on it, for instance. Don't know if anyone has any other suggestions. Okay. Uh, the, the list of questions is at page... Do you page that's Clark? Oh, I beg your pardon. Um, do you need those today, or is that something that you probably need those today? Yeah. Um. Yeah. No, they're 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 quite generic. It was just to um okay. have to sign up to them. Yeah. And okay. the list of are tabled. Yeah. Okay. Um. Any other any other decisions necessary, Clark, on item six? No. Okay. So members content to agree extension of the call for evidence to the tenth of October. Yes. Yes. Agreed. 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 Okay. Thanks for that, members. Uh, agenda item seven is forward work program. Can I refer members to the draft forward work program at page two six eight, and ask the clerk to speak to the forward work program. Um, members, given the change to the committee stage arrangements, I will revise the forward work program and return to you in correspondence on that. If that's okay. Okay, members. Agreed. 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 Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Okay, members, we move to agenda item eight. Um, we now have an hour and 50 minutes for two substantive briefings with the Department of Education and the Education Authority on area planning and SIA on the post results service. Um, I'm going to have to keep us to the strictest of time scales here, um, and uh, I'm going to need members to bear with me in that regard. Can I ask Assembly Broadcasting to remove all members from the spotlight and to add our witnesses for the oral briefing from the Department of Education and the Education Authority on area planning. Can I refer members to a briefing paper from the committee clerk in table papers and a briefing paper on area planning at page 518. Can I welcome Janice Scallon, the Director of Sustainable Schools Policy and Planning at the Department of Education. Michelle Courtney, the Director of Education at the Education Authority, and Michael McConkey, the Head of Community Planning and Community and Schools at the Education Authority, Jerry Campbell, Chief Executive of the Council for Catholic Maintained Schools. Guests, can I offer my sincere apologies for the timescales um, that have changed um, and give our sincere thanks for the time that you've given to us today on this important matter of area planning. Um, have 10 minutes, as always, available to you for an opening statement, and I will then um, chair uh, concise questions to you thereafter. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you, Chair. Can I just check? Um, I had asked in lieu of an opening statement that we could give a presentation today. I felt it was important, just given that we haven't been at committee for quite some time on area planning, and I thought it was important to set the context. So um, if Clark could share the presentation on screen, and I'll try and keep to 10 minutes, but it might take 15 um, just to go through as quickly as I can. Thank you. 
Thanks, Janice. Okay. I can't hear you, Clark. It's just to say, I'll let you work out how to do that and I'll go ahead and start just by way of introduction. So thank you to the committee. Thank you, Chair, for the opportunity to give evidence to committee today. I'm joined by my colleague, Lorraine Finlay, from Sustainable Schools Policy and Planning Director in DE, Michelle Corky, Director of Education in the Education Authority, and Jerry Campbell, the Chief Executive of CCMS. Um, I thought it would be useful, as I said, rather than giving an opening statement, that I give a presentation to committee members on area planning, the underpinning policy, an overview of structures and mechanisms for area planning, and some key statistics over the past number of years in terms of our school system and the changes brought about by area planning. I'll also present agility projects underway and anticipated and finish up with a forward look as we prepare for the next strategic area plan. Can you see the slides? Because I can't. So there are no. There we go. Okay, great. Can we move? Very Chris Whitty. Can we move on to the next slide, please? Um, so area planning is underpinned by uh, schools for the future, often referred to as a sustainable schools policy. And the key aim of area planning is to ensure that all pupils have access to a high quality education that meets their needs in schools that are educationally and financially viable. The SSP sets out six overarching criteria, which together give an overview of what sustainability means for areas and for primary and post-primary schools. And the six criteria, which you can see in front of you, are each underpinned by multiple indicators. There's often a myth perpetuated that area planning is about closing schools. This is not the case. As you can see, the sustainable schools policy is not a financial policy, but is much wider than that. Next slide, please. I thought I should take some time then just to outline the many uh, stakeholders involved in area planning and as you can see it's a widely represented group of organisations each with their own respective roles in area planning. The department are responsible for setting policy, creating and publishing guidance as well as scrutiny of the area plan and its associated action plans. Just to clarify an area plan is a multi-year plan produced by the education authority in conjunction with CCMS and all sectoral support bodies. The current area plan originally covered 2017 to 2020, but has been extended to cover the period up to and including August 22. This area plan is on the Education Authority website and has been accompanied by a series of action plans, and the latest action plan covers the period up to and including August 22. There are three support structures within an area planning. The area planning steering group, which provides strategic direction and oversight. The area planning working group, to produce action plans and monitor operations, and area planning local group to produce local solutions for planning at a grassroots level. The department chairs the area planning steering group, and the education authority is the lead planning authority and chairs APWG and APLG at an operational level. CCMS has a subsidiary planning role and represents the Catholic maintained sector. And the other bodies at the bottom of the slide, sorry, could you bring the next slide up, please? Um, the other bodies at the bottom of the slide represent all other bodies involved and all other sectors involved in area planning. So we have TRC, the Transferers Representative Council um, for church schools representing the largest Protestant churches, NICE for integrated schools, CNA G for Irish medium schools, CSSC for controlled schools, the Governing Bodies Association for Voluntary Grammar Schools and the Catholic Schools Trustees Service for Catholic Trustees 
all bodies work collectively at a strategic level and also at operational levels to give effect to area planning, planning for their sectors and delivering on the aims of the sustainable schools policy. Can we move on two slides, please? Can the clerk hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. It's actually the assistant clerk who is um, managing the slides, Janice. So, okay. Um, okay. Yeah, we can move on. It's just the visuals are kind of important as I'm talking through. Otherwise, I'll just bore people. Um, so the slide on development proposals, if we could bring that up, please. I think that he may have frozen. Um, oh, right. Okay. Well, hopefully, and hopefully the visuals will follow. Yeah. Um, so in terms of development proposals, these are the means through which the provision in an area is shaped to deliver the strategic vision outlined in the area plan. It's underpinned by a number of legislative articles, which I'll not go into the detail, but certainly feel free to ask, um, but primarily Article 14. Um, gives cover for a development proposal to be brought forward for a grant-aided school. To establish a new school, to amend the status um, of an existing grant-aided school, to discontinue an existing grant-aided school, to discontinue um, or, or to make any other change in a school which would have a significant effect on another grant-aided school. The Department has a duty under Article 64 of the Education 89 order to encourage and facilitate the development of integrated education and a duty under the article article 89 of the education 98 order to encourage and facilitate the development of Irish medium education and then the shared education act also places a duty on the department to encourage facilitate and promote shared education the timeline presented in the visual that you can't see um, shows the path for development proposals so I'll just talk you through um, the need is first identified that something needs to change in an area. After that, then significant changes that are required are brought forward by means of a development proposal by the relevant proposer. The Education Authority will then conduct a pre-publication consultation and then we move to a statutory, uh, a statutory objection period. It's at that point that the department become involved and that statutory objection period is two months. What I will say at this point is the two-month period for the statutory objection period, um, if you're aware, area planning was stood down during the COVID-19 pandemic to allow my team and other officials to respond to the pandemic. Um, when we stood area planning back up, uh, we acknowledged the break of six months that people had had while area planning was stood down, and we gave the full two-month statutory objection at the other end. We also extend statutory objection periods over the summer in the full acknowledgement that schools are off um, and, and taking a well-earned break uh, after a long and hard academic year. So in order to get the widest possible consultation, we will extend any statutory objection periods by the summer, Christmas, Easter, midterms and so on. So just thought it was important to point that out. Um, once the statutory objection period is over, all um, at that stage, anyone can bring forward objections, letters of support, call for meetings um, into the department. Um, when the statutory objection period is over, the department then take all salient evidence, all evidence brought through the objections or letters of support, um, evidence from our policy colleagues across the department, um, and any other evidence that comes in during that period. We pull that all together and bring a submission of advice to minister. The Minister is the ultimate decision taker on all development proposals 
And once a decision is made, it is then legally binding. So it must be implemented. So the proposers are set out um, in our development proposal guidance for that reason. The proposer must be able to implement the proposal if agreed. Um, there is no means of uh, appeal mechanism for DP decisions other than by way of judicial review. And just to give you a bit of an overview, very high level, happy to take questions. Since 2017, we've had a total of 124 development proposals with decisions. In the controlled sector, we've had 34. In the Catholic maintained sector, we've had 39. In the integrated sector, we've had 31. 13 in the Irish medium and other maintained sector, and seven from voluntary grammar schools. And I'm happy to take any questions on that one. If we can move to the next slide then. This is just to give you a quick overview of our current system um, and the schools that we have, the level of enrolments um, and the number of settings that we have. So I won't dwell on this if we can move forward to the next slide, just I want to spend a bit of time on the 10 year history. Um, there are many trends which I could have chosen to present today, but I thought these were important as data move in herds. So these indicators are perhaps best when looking at area planning and the sustainability of our schools. Firstly, the number of available places, often referred to as empty desks or surplus places, is something which is often focused on in the media and indeed was a recommendation from various audit reports that the department should address the number of available places in schools. One thing to clarify, though, is that available places are not funded. Children are funded, not places. Nonetheless, you can see from the chart that the number of available places in our schools has decreased substantially from almost 84,500 to just over 52,500, representing a reduction of 38% over the past 10 years. In primary schools, this was a reduction of 42% and in post-primary, a reduction of 21%. The flexibility thresholds across the system should be around 10%, so there's still work to be done in reducing the number of available places across our schools. I'll come to that later in the presentation. In terms of enrolments then, the minimum enrolment for a primary school is 140 in an urban area, 105 in a rural area, while for a post-primary school, the minimum recommended enrolment is 500 for years 8 to 12 and 100 in sixth form. The reason enrolment thresholds are important for sustainability is that the smaller the school, the more acute problems can become in terms of providing a broad and balanced curriculum. ETI advises that ideally a primary school should have seven classrooms, one for each year group, and this equates to an optimum enrolment of 210 for single intake, 420 for double intake and so on. The figures here look at schools which do not meet the aforementioned minimum thresholds. I mentioned earlier that data move in herds, and while stable enrolment trends is only one of six SSP criteria, it's nonetheless a central figure for an individual school's educational and financial viability. Small school size may appear to have certain advantages, however, in terms of personal attention and focus on individual pupils. But small schools may struggle with a range of challenges, including the demands on staff in producing a differentiated programme for classes with mixed age groups or ensuring adequate SANE provision and ensuring substitute covers for teachers. There may also be higher administrative burden on teachers, including teaching principals, leaving them less time for the preparation of lessons. And children who are taught in composite classes of three year groups or more may not have access to the full educational experience or to appropriate opportunities for peer interaction. 
It's for these reasons I've chosen to look at the number of schools falling under the recommended minimum enrolment thresholds. We've seen some really positive trends in the number of unsustainable primary schools over the last 10 years, a reduction from 341 primary schools to 237 primary schools. There is, however, more work to be done in this area as we still have almost 30% of primary schools which fall beneath the minimum enrolment thresholds. Similarly, in small post-primary schools, there are challenges in providing the broad and balanced range of subjects and specialisms needed to offer effective pathways to further and higher education or training or employment for young people. For most primary schools and looking at small sixth forms of less than 100 pupils, the trend is more variable. But nonetheless, a reduction has been seen in the number of sixth forms failing to meet this threshold. There is more work to be done in this area. We've seen a downward trend in recent, in recent years in terms of the number of post-primary schools for years 8 to 12, from a height of 104 schools falling below sustainability thresholds to 74, representing a reduction of 34%. Taken together then, a 36% reduction across all post-primary schools falling below sustainability thresholds has been seen since 2010-11. Bearing in mind what has gone before in terms of enrolment being a driver of sustainability, whether it be finance, professional development of staff, peer-to-peer -peer learning and catering adequately for differentiation in learning for all children while there is work to be done, trends are moving in the right direction to ensure a better quality of education for all children. In terms of finance, the chart speaks for itself. It's important to emphasise that area planning is not about achieving financial savings nor is it a policy for the closure of schools. Evidence of the ability to work within a budget allocation is one of six criteria by which overall sustainability is assessed, while alternatives to closure are part of area planning considerations. There is a finite budget for education and the level of unsustainability in the education system means that resources have to be distributed widely to ensure that in small schools every pupil has access to a broad and balanced curriculum. Maintaining schools on an individual level that are unsustainable therefore impacts on all schools across the system. What we've seen though across the system is that in terms of the proportion of schools that are failing to meet minimum enrolment thresholds, this is falling and that is to be welcomed. Can you take the next slide please? I'll be very quick from here on in, I promise. Um, this slide is really just to show um, some of the agility projects that we've had the opportunity to work on through the Delivering Schools for the Future Transformation project. And this is about, we recognise that area planning is a complex and sensitive matter and it can take time to bring schools and communities together in terms of significant changes to schools in local areas. That said, there was an opportunity to explore the potential for agility in area planning through the work of this project. And several key projects have come out of the DSF um, Schools for the Future project. Resetting for an area planning process. This was a voluntary pilot, which subsequently became a mandatory exercise, where schools that have a historically very high enrolment, but have never filled to the places um, in a series of four out of five years, we were able to reduce those enrolments without the need for a development proposal. And in short, this has taken in the voluntary in the voluntary exercise reduced available places by four thousand, and in the mandatory exercise, over five thousand available places were removed from sixty-two primary schools reset through the process for primary schools. The former minister recently decided to extend the resetting for area planning process to eligible post-primary schools, and that voluntary downsizing is currently underway. 
We also had an opportunity to explore how area planning should take place for special educational needs. And as a result of the work of the DSF uh, project, we have two area planning frameworks, one for special schools and one for um, specialist provision in mainstream schools. And these are due to be with the department imminently. Um, and is, the minister is, is, um, will have to endorse those before we can release them. There was also a SEN pilot which looked at the need for development proposals for specialist provision in mainstream schools and whether this is deemed a significant enough change to warrant a development proposal or not. So again, we have the results of that pilot report, which should be coming to the department very shortly for endorsement by the minister. And it is hoped that this will make um, provision for children with special educational needs much more agile and much more responsive to the demand that's out there. We've revised area planning guidance and hope to release that shortly. And other guidance that's currently in progress um, includes a user guide to the sustainable schools policy, bringing this up to date um, and making it more current in terms of its language. Um, a circular on frameworks for developing schools, which aims to support schools, new schools that have been developed over a 10 year period to ensure that the right support is put into those schools to ensure that they thrive and grow to become sustainable schools. And the department's development proposal guidance will also be refreshed on foot of the finalised area planning guidance. Next slide, please. We've also produced a sustainability baseline report and this is being finalised at present and will need approval from the minister before um, we can release it. But just to give you an idea, you can read the slide that's up there. You don't need me to talk you through that. But we thought that um, we're coming to the end of the current area plan in August 22. We are in the pre-planning year for the next strategic area plan. And that's why we've developed this report. Um, it takes existing data and trends on the quantifiable indicators of the sustainable schools policy. And we've examined a 10-year picture. Some of those slides you've seen. This report doesn't cover all criteria in the sustainable schools policy and in taking a more outcomes based approach, we've committed to a data development agenda moving forward to explore data for other criteria in the policy. The report's based on analysis at Northern Ireland level, at the macro level, and then provides 11 additional reports, one for each local government district. It's hoped that the evidence will be included in the wider evidence base to underpin the strategic direction of the next area plan, anticipated to commence in September 22, and the data within it will be refreshed with a further year of data when school census data are available. I don't want to preempt what Jerry or Michelle are going to say on the development of the next area plan, but will simply say that this report has developed a long time series presentation of our school system, which should hopefully highlight areas where attention needs to be focused and given to area planning and operational actions needed, as well as giving an overview of the current level of our schools at the macro and meso levels, meeting or not meeting sustainability thresholds, and should help to aid the planning authorities and sectoral support bodies all involved in the production of the next area plan when engaging schools and localities to look at viable area planning solutions for their area. And my last slide then is just to look at the forward work programme. Looking forward for area planning and bearing in mind the next area plan is due to commence in September 22. As I've said, we're, in the, we're currently in the pre-planning year. A timetable for this is underway and will be published very shortly on our website. And it'll cover all of the activities leading up to the commencement of the next area plan. 
In advance of the next area plan, the department will, in conjunction with all APSG members, update the sustainability baseline report that I've already mentioned, produce revised area planning guidance, update guidance on producing development proposals and the development proposal process, and explore the options for raising and enhancing awareness of area planning by boards of governors through a sustainability checklist, which will allow all schools to be aware of the sustainable schools policy and to ask them to examine their own school in terms of the criteria in the sustainable schools policy and to be aware of any risks of unsustainability. We will continue to take the positives from last year in terms of our newfound abilities to conduct business in a virtual world, embracing technology as an aid to effective consultation and meetings, as well as digital communications going forward in area planning. We've also taken forward and are developing agility processes that I've already mentioned um, as a result of the DSF project. And these look at non-significant changes to reset or normalise a school's enrolment figure in line with established long-term trends. Thank you for your patience um, and I'll end with saying while there's been a lot of good work done in what is a really complex and sensitive space, there's still much work to be done to explore creative and innovative solutions through area planning and with collaborative and collective solutions from all of those involved that I outlined in the slide. There are many organisations involved in area planning at all levels. We will continue to work to achieve the aims of the sustainable schools policy that all children have access to a high quality education in a school which is educationally and financially viable and we will continue to work collectively to have the right number of schools of the right type and size in the right locations at the right time that have a focus on raising standards thank you again for your patience and i'm going to pass to michelle and jerry if they have anything they wish to add to my statement Thank you. Thank you, Janice. Uh, Chair, with your permission, I'm going to make a brief statement. Yeah, thanks, okay. thanks, thanks Michelle. I'll, I'll mm -hmm. just have to keep our questions extremely concise, but we, we appreciate the information that, that you're bringing to us today. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, good morning, Chair and members. The Education Authority, as you know, has overall operational responsibility for planning of provision within the area planning policy and strategic framework set by the Department of Education. The Education Authority is also the managing authority for all controlled schools. And a key aspect of the Education Authority's overall role since its inception has been to bring together and work in partnership with all, with all other educational partners, the Council for Catholic Maintained Schools, Controlled School Support Council, Koyla Nagil Governing Bodies Association, Northern Ireland Council for Integrated Education, Catholic Schools Trustee Service, Transferers Representative Council, and the Department for the Economy representing the further education sector. A key outcome of this has been the harmonisation of area planning practices, improved cooperation and collaboration. During the lifetime of the first strategic area plan, under the leadership of the Education Authority, 32 unsustainable schools have been discontinued, 81 more schools are above the minimum SSP enrolment thresholds. There are 25 fewer small primary schools with composite classes of more than two-year groups. And over 8,000 pupils are now in more educationally viable schools. As the Managing Authority for Control Schools and through partnership working with our colleagues in the Controlled Schools Support Council from April 2017, 12 unsustainable controlled schools have been discontinued and 14 controlled schools have increased their admission and enrolment numbers to meet demand. 
These outcomes demonstrate clearly that the Education Authority has been and will continue to be focused on meeting the needs of children and young people to improve educational outcomes. To make this happen for the most efficient and effective way possible and to ensure that all pupils are educated in educationally viable school. Despite the positive outcomes from the first strategic area plan, there is still more to be done, as Janice has outlined. In some areas, there are too many schools of, for the size of the population, while in other areas, there are not enough places. It may be the case also that there are not even enough school places of the right type. In some areas, there may be a demand for controlled, maintained, integrated or Irish medium education that is currently not being met. Therefore, as we move into the second strategic area plan, the Education Authority affirms its position that the purpose of area planning is to contribute to school improvement. At every stage, the focus of decision making will continue to be related to the needs of children and young people. One of the key challenges for all of us, Chair, is that area planning is not about retaining schools or institutions from a particular sector or tradition, but rather about providing every child and young person with a range of educational experiences which will prepare them fully to contribute to the prosperity of the community in which they live and work. This can only be achieved through a, viable, a network of viable and sustainable schools that are of the right type, the right size, located in the right place, and have a focus on raising standards. This will continue to be most challenging in our rural communities, which are often served by two small primary schools, one under the management of the Education Authority and the other managed by the Council for Catholic Maintained Schools. Both organisations recognise that the closure of such schools can be extremely difficult for the community. Therefore, the next strategic area plan will have a clear focus on engaging communities in a shared exploration about the way forward, to work towards a realistic, sustainable solution by providing further guidance and support to governors and local community leaders to ensure ongoing school provision in these areas where possible. Thank you, Chair, and I hand over to Jerry. Thank, thank you, Chair. If I may just be brief, uh, and good morning to yourself and good morning to the committee. Uh, as Janice and Michelle have outlined the key strategic aims and objectives of area planning, its outcomes, the challenges and the future direction, I just want to, to mention a wee bit about the role that CCMS also plays. CCMS would be a very key partner along with the Department and the Education Authority and our other sectoral colleagues in progressing area planning. And Council supports the view that our education system should provide high quality education for all our young people and there, that there must be equity of access and opportunity to a broad and balanced curriculum that meets the pupil needs in sustainable schools within a, a diverse um, system of education. CCMS also believes that the, the Catholic and faith-based ethos of our schools in the maintained sector enables a particular focus on the wider holistic development of all of our young people to achieve their full potential and a close link with their wider community and to inform educational opportunities beyond the school setting itself. We have a distinct role within CCMS as a planning authority for 450 maintained nursery, primary, post-primary and special schools. CCMS works very closely with the trustees of Catholic grammar schools to enact and progress the recommendations of their 2012 post-primary schools area plan. And as Michelle and Janice have indicated, since its inception, CCMS has also brought forward a significant number of often very challenging proposals to support the development of a network of sustainable schools providing that high quality education 
in line with our stated aim of raising educational standards for all. So since 2013, CCMS has implemented 13 amalgamations, thus bringing forward 13 new schools as a result of 31 schools discontinuing. In addition to this, in this time, CCMS has also brought forward the discontinuance of 16 primary schools and seven post-primary schools. In total, this has removed almost 10,000 spare places within the system. And alongside this, CCMS has also worked in close collaboration with the trustees of seven Catholic voluntary grammar schools to remove or reduce the use of academic selection. CCMS recognises that changes to the nature of a school or the provision in a particular area or locality is often very difficult for any community, and we appreciate the challenges that this brings. However, our focus must always be on access to educational choices for the pupils that best meet their individual needs and talents and abilities, and which maximise their opportunities and chances to reach their full potential. We will continue to work with our trustees and our other colleagues right across the educational sector to improve outcomes for all, to sustain strong, successful and viable schools, well led by their governors, principals and staff, and ultimately to uphold an education system that plays a powerful and positive role in the normalising of our society, helping to make it sustainable and vibrant. Finally, we recognise the significant and very challenging issues that principals, governors and our schools have faced over the past year within the COVID-19 pandemic. And we would want to commend our school leaders and the wider school communities for their remarkable efforts to continue to support our pupils and to ensure continuity of learning throughout that period. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed for your presentations today. Um, I, I think we've got about 30 minutes at the absolute maximum here um, for, I think, seven members' questions. Members, I think we've less than four minutes each. You normally have about seven or eight, so calculate half of what you normally say and go from that point. Um, this could have been helped by people speaking to me in advance of today to ensure our committee business was better handled. It wasn't. We move on. Apologies for the short nature of the questions. Witnesses, we're extremely grateful for your, your time today. Um, to, to start from me, um, a, a study in 2017 to 18 of, of pairs of schools found that 274 of 817 primary schools, or approximately 34%, were below sustainability thresholds. Um, 32 pairs of primary schools were less than one mile apart providing education on a, a separated basis. Uh, 10 schools had fewer than 50 pupils. Some ratios had one teacher for eight pupils and the NI average was one teacher for 22. Have we made adequate progress on those figures? I think, Chair, I'm happy to take that one. I mean, you know, I've outlined there in the presentation the movement that there has been in areas. Um, and as we've all said, Michelle, Jerry, and myself have all said that area planning is extremely complex and sensitive. From a strategic point of view, uh, you could look at numbers and go into an area and simply close all small schools. But when you go into a rural community to tell people who are very attached to their school and the school often has a really long history in that community and really is the centre of the community, 
that's a really sensitive and emotional discussion to have to have. So where I'm trying to get to is to get to the point where there are area-based solutions for small areas, for large urban areas, for areas where, as Michelle alluded to, there may be two very small primary schools. Um, and the solution may be that they share, it may be that they collaborate, there may be an innovative solution in that area. It takes time to bring communities and stakeholders into that mix to have those discussions, to have that important early stage consultation before options are put on the table and anything would ever come into the action plan stage uh, of the area planning cycle. So, you know, I appreciate that a drop may look quite small, but there has been some substantial change over the last 10 years um, in terms of the reduction of unsustainable schools. Um, but we have more work to do in this area, but that has to be taken in the knowledge that um, it is a very complex area. It's difficult to go in and talk to communities about removing something or potentially removing something that they have been so attached to for so long, for generations. So I think we have to acknowledge that and that's why the area planning process can be slow moving, but it is definitely moving in the right direction. Okay, thanks for that. I'm obviously not wedded or suggesting that a blanket school closure is the, my proposal to respond to those figures. And you, Janice, allude to innovative area-based solutions, um, which I think is the way forward. I'd love if I had time to ask you for some examples of such innovative area-based solutions. Um, if you have a quick one, I would ask, because um, I'm really pushed for time. Do, do you have any concise examples of, of where that's taken place? Well, I think, to be fair, if I could maybe allude to another area of my work, which is the progress of the Shared Education Campuses programme. Um, so we have four Shared Education Campuses, which bring already sustainable schools together uh, to share. Um, and the first of those projects under my remit would be Limavadi, uh, which sees the two schools, St Mary's in Limavadi and Limavadi High School, who are conveniently next door to each other, but they already have a really long history of sharing. So if you go to St Mary's and you decide to do <coughs> drama, for example, you'll automatically go into Limavadi High School to do that subject. So they're building a STEM centre um, and it's really positive to see they've broken ground and we anticipate the building to be up sooner than was expected. So there are absolutely yeah. opportunities out there for innovative and creative solutions for schools to come together. Okay. The Independent Review of Integrated Education recommended that a stakeholder engagement strategy for area planning be developed with a specific focus on how planning authorities engage with local communities around innovative, integrated, jointly managed and shared options. Has that been implemented? Well, I'll go first and then I'll pass to Michelle and Jerry as the statutory planning authorities. Um, what I would say is that as part part and parcel of area planning and the development proposal guidance that's out there and what I am aware that through area planning steering group that all of our stakeholders in area planning do is heavy consultation 
with communities and sometimes that can take years just alluding to my last answer to your question sometimes that can take years in communities widely consulting um, so there is a mechanism for that consultation and then there are the statutory elements of the consultation which is the affected school consultation by EA um, and uh, the statutory objection period by the department so at all levels from grassroots levels right up to the strategic level consultation is wide um, and options are explored at all of those levels for area solutions but if I could pass maybe to Michelle and Jerry to talk about that okay. from an operational perspective Apologies yeah, that I'm sorry. pretty much out of time for my questions, so if you could be as concise as possible, I'd really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Certainly, Chair. Just to say that, yes, our stakeholder engagement is extensive and continues to grow, and throughout the first strategic area plan, there were processes that were completed in terms of consultations, but as we move into the second strategic area plan, obviously that stakeholder engagement will now have been enhanced. That's a benefit of COVID because now we have different processes of consultation and those processes will be enhanced. So as we move forward, it will become more extensive. Okay. Um, in, in closing, in terms of special school area planning, obviously a, an entire new additional special school was recommended for Belfast in 2012. And in the last area plan, um, at least one school, Cedar Lodge, was proposed to be extended from three to 19 and remains at 16 with associated difficulties experienced this year as a result. Um, in, in a concise response, are we any closer to delivering a new special school for Belfast and extending provision in schools such as Cedar Lodge from three to 19? Yes, Chair, with your permission, Janice, I'll, I'll respond. Um, obviously, we have had the consultation on the specialist school framework, and that has now given us a basis for developing a five-year strategic plan specifically for special educational needs, and that gives us the basis to move forward on that. So the short answer, Chris, is yes, and uh, we hope to have um, the responses are now complete. Consultations have gone to DE. The framework for specialist schools and specialist provision in main schools will be uh, with the department no later than the 9th of July and we'll go through the Education Authorities Board on the 5th of August. And obviously we're developing that framework in, in very close consultation with special school leaders. Thank, thanks, Michelle. Timescales would be great on that as well. Um, let me bring in Debbie person, Pat Sheehan, for four minutes. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Chair, and, and thanks to all of you this morning. Um, we're seeing again this year that uh, some students still haven't got a placement. Uh, yet we're told there are thousands of available places uh, in the system. Uh, and uh, area planning was supposed to have dealt with that, yet we see it year after year. And I mean, I presume you're going to say uh, the places aren't available in the right places or in the right sectors. But I mean, area planning was supposed to deal with those issues. So I wonder, could you comment on that? And I'll just give you a second question dealing with Irish medium education and the proposed changes to the minimum threshold in, in the sustainable schools program would probably disproportionately impact on the Irish medium sector uh, and the proposed 10 year period for a school to demonstrate sustainability would also have an impact. If you look historically, only 29% of Irish medium schools uh, would have met that threshold. Uh, so again, Irish medium is likely to be disproportionately affected. So I'm wondering, could you 
comment on both of those questions. Thanks. Okay. Um, I'm happy enough to take that one, Pat. Um, you, you ventured into post-primary transfer, but you've correctly linked it to area planning. So, um, yes, I mean, while at the end of, of this year's P7 cohort, uh, almost 99% of children were placed um, and almost 85% of children were placed in their first preference school. Uh, we had 280 children unplaced at the end um, of the process. So receive a place. And that figure as of yesterday is down to 84. So we're working very closely with colleagues in the Education Authority um, to ensure that those children are placed as quickly as possible. Um, but you're right, at the end of the process, there were around 2,700 places available across the north um, in our schools. And as I said, the aim of area planning is to have the right number of schools of the right type and the right size in the right location and at the right time. But I would have to preface that as well by saying that, again, area planning is complex. It is almost impossible to make those decisions quickly and overnight. Um, you have to be able to consult at an early stage. There are statutory processes that have to be followed and the development proposal process can take actually quite a while, but it's that early stage of getting communities engaged and signed up to what significant changes potentially need to take place in their areas to give effect to having the right schools of the right size and the right type at the right time and the right location. So we have temporary variation policy, which allows us um, through a different um, piece of legislation to temporarily vary a school's admission or enrolment number for one year. And this year, so far, we've put in, up until yesterday, it may have changed again this morning, um, but we've put in 941 um, additional places into schools. And we will do that. We've always used temporary variation policy in every year um, where we see demographic pressure in certain sectors. Once you go down to local community level, the population does vary quite a bit year on year. So we need a solution that we're able to use a temporary variation to school enrolment to meet the demographic pressure in an area. But area planning is strategic planning in the long term. And we have seen, as I've shown today, the direction of travel is going the right way. And I'm quite confident that with the next area plan, it will continue to do that and hopefully at a much quicker pace. Um, in terms of the other questions around sustainability thresholds, there's no plan, um, certainly at the minute, to change any sustainability thresholds. I think what you might be referring to is the urban and rural definition that we use in the sustainable schools policy. So we have updated that definition um, in line with what the rest of government and statutory and voluntary organisations use in terms of urban and rural. Um, so what that means is we, at the minute in the sustainable schools policy, Belfast local government district, as it was before local government reform, and uh, Derry local government district, as it was before local government reform, were deemed urban. And the rest of the 24, as they were, local government districts were deemed rural. Um, our population has grown. It grows around 10,000 people or 100,000 people every 10 years. So we have to recognise that some of our what previously might have been deemed rural areas by this policy have become much more urbanised. Um, so in that respect, 
um, we have changed that definition and that has been approved um, and will take effect in the next area plan. In terms of those schools, um, I think you're referring to Irish medium schools that may be disproportionately affected. A couple of things I would say there and I'll pass to Lorraine on the developing schools uh, work that's being done. Very, very few schools are individually affected. We're into single figures of schools that are individually affected and there will be a transition period um, okay. for, for that said, change I'm, to take effect. I'm, I'm sorry, that's, that's almost six minutes here. I, I'm working okay. on the time scale I'm working to today. Apologies. Pat, do you have any real urgent final question you want to ask? I'm just going to be cutting people off left, right and centre. No, no, I, 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 I apologise. Sorry, folks. I understand the time constraints, so thanks for that. Thank you. I can only apologise. Um, can I bring in um, Diane? Diane Dodds, MLA, thank you. Uh, yes, thank you. Um, and thank you to all for the presentation. It's absolutely fascinating for someone who is just newly on to um, the committee. Can I ask, uh, for example, what role... Um, um, the issue around children travelling to suitable um, places uh, in uh, post-primary schools has um, in area planning. And I'm thinking particularly of uh, the Lurgan site of Craigavon Senior High School, where um, children will, uh, if the development proposal is uh, followed through on, will have to travel to the Lurgan site um, and whether or not we shouldn't have been looking for a single school in the wider Craig Avon area for the whole of the, the senior high school in any case. Um, so just around the issue of how travel impacts on that whole proposal um, and, and, and the, the issue of taking young people out of their very distinct communities um, to, to uh, travel uh, to school. The other thing that I'm really interested in pursuing, because I do think... Um, that we uh, have a lot of work to do um, at how we help children to make choices at the age of 14. Um, and you give a very, very good example in Limavati of how schools cooperate and work together and how you can produce something quite special and unique. I actually think that there is an opportunity also to do this in a more expansive basis with the further education sector. And I'd like to know your view on that. And is there any way that that is figured into the area planning? Diana, if I could maybe just come in for first and very quickly and then I'll pass to colleagues in the Education Authority. In terms of um, the development proposal for Craig Avon Senior High School, um, the department is still under consideration in the department and you'll appreciate that I can't get drawn into um, what any decision might be. We need to be able to take all of the evidence that we've got and that's been put in during the statutory objection period in order to bring advice to the minister. So I can't be drawn in on that one right now. Um, we do have, and, and in the wider sort of travel times and things, we do have criteria in the sustainable schools policy um, on the website, which do reference um, reasonable traveling times to schools and things like that. So um, I think that's all I can say around that one. And I'll pass to EA in a second. In terms of um, the Department for Economy and further and higher education, yes. I have to apologise. I didn't mention them when I went through that overview slide, but the Department for the Economy are represented uh, at area planning steering groups. So we do work closely with the Department for the Economy. And I agree. I do think there is lots of opportunity there. 
uh, for creative and innovative solutions, particularly for um, post-16. And I think then, obviously, the department in the 14 to 19 strategy will be working closely with DFE on that as well. But just in the interest of time, can I pass over to Michelle in case you have anything to add, Michelle? Thank you, Janice. Yes, Michael would like to respond. Uh, thank you, uh, Chair. Um, just in reference to the member's question from Craig Avon uh, Senior High School, um, the Education Authority's proposal um, and the actual development proposal does reference the need to move to one site, but because of the protocols, we can't access that capital funding until the development proposal decision is actually made. But it was very clearly stated by our EA uh, board members that that is their desire to have Craig Avon High School. Uh, senior high school on one site moving forward in, in new accommodation. And then secondly, just to uh, follow up on Janice's point about FE, obviously uh, inextricably linked uh, in post-primary schools. So for example, recent development proposal for Ballamoney uh, High School for sixth form was linked into the work in the area learning community with the other schools in the area and with FE. And similarly, in work we're taking forward in Coleraine, again, inextricably linked to the other schools in the area through the ALC, but particularly to the university and also to FE College. So yes, uh, we totally agree with, with the member's comment in relation to the role of FE in area planning. Diane, I'm sorry, that's, that's time up if you'd like to ask a very concise final question or comment. No, I'm good. Um, it's, it's a subject I'm going to return to. That's really important. I, Thank you. I, I agree, Diane. Th thanks for raising those questions. Appreciate it. And can I bring Daniel McCrossan, MLA, in for four minutes, please? Thanks. Daniel, there we go. Okay, Robbie Butler, MLA, please. Thanks. Thank you, Chair. Uh, thanks, guys. I've just got two questions, so I will be uh, pretty brief. First one is in regards to um, area planning and the uh, work that is done with local uh, planning. So for instance, if we give an example, um, a large scale development uh, in Lisbon, maybe circa 16 or 600 houses, um, or actually in the, in the future development plans, um, perhaps in the region of 1,500 to 2,000 um, homes. Um, what role uh, does local government planning play uh, in regard, what, what is the statutory uh, consultation look like for uh, future-proofing uh, the provision of, of, of school places uh, when large-scale new builds happen? I'm happy to start with a response on that one, Robbie. Um, that's a question for the Department for Infrastructure. <laughs> we look after planning. Um, Come on, you guys, you guys build the schools. You guys build the schools. Come on. In terms of area planning from an educational perspective, um, yeah. we're involved... Um, in DE and indeed the Education Authority and CCMS um, are statutory planning partners for community planning. Yeah. So we're there in every local government district and, and there's a DE director assigned to each local government district for community planning. So conversations take place. From an area planning perspective, um, we don't operate on a build it and they will come precedent. <sighs> um, we can't plan for what's not there so yeah. we don't we don't because there are x amount of houses it doesn't necessarily mean we'll need a school of this type and this size in this location we may already have enough places in that area to service the development but until people move in 
We don't know who's going to live there. Is it young families? Is it older people? Is it a mix? Well, we have primary children, preschool children, post-primary children. So it's very difficult to plan in that way. When you're planning for houses, you're building houses of a certain type to accommodate whoever wants to move into them. When you're planning for education, you actually need the children there to see what type of education is needed. So I don't know, Michelle... Jerry, do you want to come in on the back of that? If I, if I would maybe come in there, Janice, just to go back to Robbie, I think the importance of continual engagement and communication between the education organisations and the community planning teams within the district councils, but also looking at the potential impact that there might be an existing provision, because we're managing, we talked about in terms of area planning here, the sustainability levels within primary and post-primary schools. So, it's, it's ensuring that there's continued engagement with the relevant um, players on the ground through even the local groups feeding up to the area planning strategic group because it's just, as Janice explained, it's not just as simple as putting in a school and then hoping that the, the children will come, but it's having those conversations and seeing where the trends and where, or, and where the, the changes are happening and trying to be ahead of the curve. Uh, it's not an exact sense. It can be very, very challenging. We appreciate that. But maximising that engagement with relevant statutory partners, even looking outside education, is very important as part of the continuing process. Okay, I, I, I appreciate that, guys. And my question, I, I kind of unfairly pitched you guys, because it's not a criticism, by the way, of how you go about it. I think there's something wrong uh, with um, the area planning and councils with regard to um, when planning permission is, is granted for, for large-scale development, that very often the developer will stick a school in, and there's been no discussion uh, with the department or the education authority as to whether the school is viable, whether it's appropriate, whether the money exists, and it's kind of a soft at times, and it's, it's, it's a false promise. So, but I do think it needs to change, guys. I'm just going to be up front. Uh, it needs to change, probably driven by infrastructure. Uh, guys need to be in on it. And I think we can do better with regard to projecting, because we know when we build a certain type of house, certain type of people are going to live in it. We can do that in multiplication. Last, final question. Michelle, this is for you, just to, um, on special education needs. Can you uh, give us any figures with regard to unclear uh, children for September uh, at this point? Um, and hopefully it's not by money because there was a few last year and hopefully we'll not we'll not be revisiting that. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks for that, Robbie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you, you know we've been very open and transparent about our process this year and it, it, it has been a, a mammoth task to get all of the children placed and I'm very happy to report that on the, the 5th of July this week, we have 98.7% of our children placed at, at stage five of the code of practice, and uh, and the, the final 0.123% are being addressed as we speak. So we find ourselves in a very good place, and we're very confident that September will look very different this year, Robbie. I hope so. Thank you, Michelle. Thanks for the team all being available, and I do hope that, that, that everybody gets his place. So thank you, thank you, Chair. Thank you, guys. Thanks, thanks, Robbie. Michelle, how many pupils are unplaced in special school at this stage for next year? None. None. Sorry, beg your pardon. Beg your pardon. Beg your pardon. Four, and it's not that they haven't been placed. It, it they just have to confirm the place. But at, okay. at this moment in time, Chris, every child has been placed. <clears throat> Thank you. Can I bring in Nicola Brogan, MLA, please, for four minutes. Thanks. Thanks, Chair, and thanks everyone for your presentation this morning. I was actually a bit late on to the meeting, so I missed um, the most of it. But so apologies if I'm making you repeat yourself. But um, I just kind of want to ask. I represent um, West Rome, which is a largely rural constituency. So can you tell me how um, the objectives, or how you meet the objectives of this? 
sustainable school policy and meet rural needs as well. Can I start, Nicola, and then I'll pass to the planning authorities. Um, sure, Michelle, Michelle had already said in her opening statement, um, you know, area planning takes account of the communities in which it's, it's situated at that time. So it's a grassroots project as well. Um, we have strategic area planning where the chief executives of all of those organisations sit around and strategically um, look at the area plan. But ultimately, area planning comes from the bottom up. So it is designed locally by local uh, representation of all of those organisations that I outlined in my presentation who know their local areas best. Um, so planning for rural areas could be slightly different, the conversations taking place, than it would be in urban areas where you do tend to see less unsustainability in urban areas. But it does take account of rural needs under the Rural Needs Act. So once those local conversations take place to come up with area solutions, they come up through the area planning working group, up through the area planning steering group, and ultimately, if the result is that a development proposal is brought for a change to a school, um, we then take account of the Rural Needs Act. So the planner, the proposer themselves will take account of the Rural Needs Act and the needs of rural children, and the department will also take account of the Rural Needs Act as we are obliged to um, under the statutory process. I'll pass to Michelle or Jerry if they have anything. Yes, thanks, Janice. I suppose with the Strategic Area Plan in 2015, it was a, a mechanism for organisations to work together for the first time, really on a rural, on a regional basis. And that's where, Nicola, your question, I suppose, sits. How do you marry the regional requirements with, with the rural briefing. So as Janice has said, all of all of the, the work that we do it has a rural need screening for every single proposal. But what we definitely don't do is is, is um, engage in a process of slash and burn. It is very strategic in its intent. And as we move into the second strategic area plan, we will be working with local communities to find, as Janice has already said, those innovative solutions to try and to make sure that there's the, the right school in the right place at the right time for the children who need it. If I could also add there, Nicola, I think a lot of this goes back to that early engagement that there are, that there takes place with local communities because we can't overemphasise that because sometimes change can happen over quite a long period of time. But in maintaining that conversation and the engagement and having sometimes the difficult conversations because you know, the pupil has to be at the centre. And if you look at the six criteria within the sustainable schools policy and ultimately providing a very broad and balanced curriculum offer for pupils and ensuring that they get the best possible education experience. They set them up for later in life, but sometimes that does mean having very, very difficult and challenging conversations. Um, that will continue, but we welcome the, the cooperation of local stakeholders on the ground, whether they be the parents, whether they be folks from the, the district councils, the schools themselves, and other interested parties as well. Yeah, absolutely, Jerry. I think that's key. And Janice, as you said as well, about engaging with locals and being a grassroots kind of issue um, and to start from there. I think, as I say, that's key to be engaging with people on the ground. And it's always so important to remember um, to kind of reflect rural needs. And I think it can easily be forgotten about. Um, so it's something I will continue to raise as well. But listen, thanks so much for all that there. And thank you, Chair. Thanks, Nicola. Can I bring in Justin McNulty, MLA, please, for four minutes? Thanks, Chair. Thanks, folks, for your evidence. So I, I'll get right to it here. In terms of area planning for special schools, 
seems to be particularly problematic and there appears to be many that are falling, feeling miserably uh, for a number of years in terms of their, their intake. And, you know, the early planning process has been discussed at length here. How, how does that tally with the fact that there are so many special schools who cannot accommodate the numbers who are seeking access to them and they're having to move to other schools in a temporary arrangement, a uh, modular classroom arrangement, how, do, how does that tally with good area planning? Sorry, Janice, I'll take that. Is that okay? Thank you, Michelle. Yeah. I suppose the work, Justin, that we have done in the consultations for the frameworks that we have gone out and the consultation is just closed, that gives us now a framework to work against to be much more strategic in the way we address these issues. And we have worked very closely with our special school principals in this space, which is why the consultation was extended twice, actually, to make sure that everybody's voice was heard and that we're all involved in the strategic uh, direction. And this, the frameworks that we have for special schools and for specialist provision in mainstream gives us a mechanism to work within where we can make sure children are placed in the appropriate places in schools that are fit to meet the, the, the growing complex needs of our children at the moment, Justin. Okay, well, I know of issues locally here where children who their parents know that they should be in a special school, but because the special school doesn't have the capacity, they have to go to a different school with a temporary arrangement, yeah. uh, sort of, um, you know, know, agreements, and it's just not ideal. And I'm just wondering how does that sit in, sit with the whole area planning uh, framework? Well, the area planning. Sorry, Justin. Just to be to to, be, to answer your question, the the, the specialist um, provision framework will move forward at the same time as the strategic area plan for mainstream schools. So there won't be any delay. All of that work will work in tandem so that we can address those issues in a much more strategic way. Okay, um, Janice, you mentioned data moves and herds. Quickly, what was data moves and herds? Tell me what that means. Um, yeah, um, so if we take, I'll take a, a, a different example, um, just to take it out of the educational arena. Data, when one piece of data moves, others tend to follow. So that's what I mean when I say data move and herd. So if we look at, um, if we look at sort of worldwide poverty statistics, um, reducing infant mortality reduces poverty in short. Um, so when we look at things like low birth weight, if we focus on that indicator and we can make that better, other data will follow long term outcomes, long term health, um, disability rates and things like that will get better. So um, for area planning, that enrolment threshold and failing to meet that enrolment threshold brings with it a whole raft of other indicators that will follow a trajectory. So if we can't get to an enrolment threshold, it will impact on teacher professional learning, the quality of education, the, the ability to cater ably and adequately for children with special educational needs, peer-to-peer um, -peer interaction and learning and cognitive development of children. So really, that, that's a crucial piece of information in area planning for us. It's central, but other data move along behind that indicator. So that's what I meant by data okay. moving well, Very, very well explained. In terms of the development process, our development proposal process, I have a very good experience with St John the Baptist uh, put it down. We're impacting the Kilmore area uh, by Hagen and the community and schools are thrilled with how that moved forward positively for them. In terms of the schools, are the children who are still on place for a secondary school, 82, I believe, how soon will that be resolved for children and parents? And how many children are you aware of and families who are 
really not pleased with the outcome of the transfer process and admissions process. Thanks, Justin. I mean, as I said, you know, um, almost 99% of children were placed and 85% and of children placed in their first preference. So we absolutely recognise that not all families received the news that perhaps they had anticipated or hoped. Um, but I would say there is the department cannot guarantee any child a place in any individual school. What we do is allow under legislation for parents to state their preferences and to increase the chances of placing a child, a parent needs to put multiple preferences on their form, realistic preferences, preferences where they've looked at the admissions criteria for the schools and ensure that their children can meet those criteria. Um, so there is a whole process that is a very complex process and I know perhaps going forward next year, communications um, could be more detailed and, and more user-friendly for parents to ensure that they understand the concept of their child's transition to post-primary um, and the importance of detailing more than one preference and the importance of reading admissions criteria, picking the right school based on realistic indicators for your child um, and then putting down a range of preferences that aren't all necessarily grammar schools or as we say in our guidance and we do produce a lot of guidance in this area. In terms of, I think it's 84, unless you're aware of two others that have been placed today, Justin, I don't have oh, that information, sorry, but yesterday it was 84. And yeah. I can categorically state that my team and the school admissions team in the Education Authority are working night and day on this to ensure that those 84 children are placed. We have not stopped. We're working weekends, we're working late nights, myself included, um, to ensure that those children get a place. So we are on this full time. Yeah. Um, Justin, that's six minutes if you want to make a very concise closing comment, thanks. Just best luck with your work. Um, hopefully that's that issue is, you know, it's causing a lot of um, real concern for families and children and really, to, you know, to get that resolved would be very, very important promptly. Thanks, Justin. Harry, Harvey, MLA, please. Thank you very much, Chair, and thank you all. Um, maybe you could tell me, preschools, I think you said, were down by 16. Is this as a result of falling preschool pupil numbers or part of a broader trend, a difficulty in the sector? I'm sorry, Harry, can you repeat the question for me? I, okay. I didn't mention preschools just in my, in my opening statement. Okay. I thought I thought I'd read some of preschools were down by sixteen. Are they not? No. Chart. It'll be on the chart. It's on their wee chart. I need to have a look at the figures that are there because yeah. I don't think I have. Yes, yeah, school enrolment in Northern Ireland slide 2020, 2021 case statistics says that funded preschool settings. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, got it. Sorry, I get it now. Yes, I've got it. Yes, I mean, that, that slide there was really just giving you an overview of our um, school estate, I suppose, and the number of the number of um, different types of facility that we have. So area planning, the sustainable schools policy only covers primary school and post-primary school. So hence my confusion. Um, yes, I mean, the preschools go down. Um, they are flexed. You'll be aware that... Um, that we have statutory and voluntary provision at preschool. So it is flexed in every year in line with the demographics. So our population, if you think about the, the sort of that 
compulsory preschool age um, of yeah. three years old goes up and down every year in local areas. So we need to be able to flex the provision in order to provide. But there is a preschool place for every um, parent and child who wants it. Right, that's good, that's great. And listen, maybe you could tell me, are many schools are currently at risk of closure? Uh, I, I don't think that I could give a figure on anyone being at risk of closure um, because area planning, as I said, looks at far more solutions um, and should be working in with schools that are at risk of being unsustainable. Um, so there's a lot of factors to take into account and the answer to unsustainability isn't necessarily a school closure. Okay, okay. I was just wondering, is there a policy, like how long does a school under threat remain so before a decision would be taken? Is there a time frame there? We wouldn't have a policy on a time no, frame there, no. no. Yeah, that's fine. Thank you very much. Harry, if I could come in there and just say, I think that's where, it is, that's where it's important that governors and the, uh, the the principal and others within the, within the school are aware and cognizant of where there may be challenges because that's where it's important to have those early conversations and engagement rather than possibly burying the heads and, and thinking that things will go away and that things will get better. It's good to have the conversations, be aware of the challenges that are out there and look, are there other creative and innovative ways that, that can address the challenges that are, that are there? So I think that early engagement and ownership in many ways of what the challenges would be at a local school level is important as part of the overall process. Yep, that's 100%, Terry. Thank you very much for that. And thank you all. Thanks for the time, Chris. Appreciate it. Thanks, Harry. Daniel McCross in MLA for no more than four minutes, please. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Chair. Can you hear me okay now? Yes. And yes, go. Yeah, the signal has been quite bad. Uh, it's coming and going here, so just bear with me a slight second. Uh, continuing with the theme of special schools and the meeting uh, and meeting the area planning needs of our vulnerable children, does the area planning process take into account the need for specialist teachers to be available in sufficient numbers to populate the classrooms? And further to that, as we all want the best for our children, workforce planning must play some part in the special school scenario. Uh, would uh, the witnesses agree with that? And further to that, uh, do EA and DE have any plans to ask the ETI to evaluate the effectiveness of the emergency provision EA is currently putting in place to accommodate hundreds of SEA children this year? Thank you, Chair. Thanks, um, Michelle. You want to come in on that? Thanks. Yes, thank you, Chris. I can I can certainly start <laughs> by saying that uh, to answer your last question first, Daniel, yes. ATI are going to undertake a review of the specialist provisions that have been established, and that's in conjunction with us. So we absolutely need to look at that. So yes, that, that is in train, and we're working to move that very quickly. Workforce planning absolutely has to be a factor here, and we're very heartened by the recruitment that has taken place for our special schools this last few months, and the, the availability of, 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 of specialist provision uh, teachers who are specially trained, but it's obviously an area that we need to work in and we need to work very closely with our universities um, in this space. So yes, it will have to factor in as part of the process. Okay, okay, thank you. Uh, and Chair, just if I have a kind of a very brief uh, question. Yeah, go ahead. Just, it's just a f further on this as well. And I, I, the, the thing knocked me out for about 10 minutes, it was difficult to get back in. Considering the importance of area planning, has there been consultation with key stakeholders, including schools, in recent times about their opinion of the effectiveness 
and relevance of area planning in their particular area? And further to that, have you done the same for other stake, uh, stakeholders such as parents and pupils? Daniel, can I just ask, is that in relation to the special schools area planning or, or generic uh, yeah. mainstream area planning? Yeah, yeah, that's just more generic, yeah. Oh, right, okay. So, I mean, I'm happy to take that. In terms of consultation, um, every the strategic area plan sets out at a strategic level what's going to happen over the next five years. It's then accompanied by um, a series of action plans which set out at an operational level what's yeah. going to happen. So consultation, EA consult um, on the strategic area plan, and Michelle will come in, I'm quite sure, in a minute about this one, but each solution in an area is heavily consulted on um, and the statutory objection period provides the period where anyone can put in their thoughts or feelings around any proposal for any school in any area so um, I think there's a lot of consultation out there but Michelle do you want to say something around the next strategic area plan and, and consultation? <clears throat> Excuse me please I think I think yes Chris you've already asked for the time frame around this but that's we are now at the stage where we're going to be moving to consultation on the next strategic area plan and the details around that, I mean, it starts uh, in terms of the, the baseline, statutory baseline report and moving through workshops and working with the department very, very closely. But then we move into all of our key stakeholders and a bit like the conversation earlier on, it's really it's really important when we engage in that stakeholder discussion because we want we want optimum buy-in and optimum participation in that. So in, in the early autumn of this year, we will move to the non-school and uh, school stakeholder engagement and then to make sure that schools have an opportunity to engage with us appropriately, we will be moving into November and January then for the consultation processes on the strategic area plan. But it's a key part of the process moving forward. Yeah, okay. Okay, Daniel, thanks. Thank you. Okay, members, that is all questions. Um, folks, thanks very much indeed for your engagement today. I'm sorry that the timings were so short, and obviously this is an issue that we'd, we'd like to return to you on in due course, but thank you for all the, the work that you're doing and all the matters that we've raised. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, members, can I ask Assembly Broadcasting to remove witnesses and add members back into the spotlight and ask the clerk to summarise any actions resulting from the briefing. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Um, I think to begin with, it would be helpful if uh, the witnesses could share with the committee the briefing papers from EA and CMS um, that were read today. Um, there is a lot of material in there that will be useful uh, to members. Um, and then, um, obviously, the policy is still developing on the on foot of consultation and um, various stages of that. So, I think the committee should write and ask for an update on the finalised policy on resetting um, area planning. Um, I had, there was one specific question, I think it was you yourself, Chair, um, in relation to uh, North Belfast um, special needs provision. Um, but that's all I have. Does anyone have additional uh, questions to go in correspondence, members? Any other additional questions or comments, members, or content? With those, obviously, it's an issue that we'll want to return to you at a future date. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, member. Thanks, Clark. Thank we move then to agenda item nine, which is our briefing from SIA. 
on the post results service uh, this year. Can I ask Assembly Broadcasting to remove all members from the spotlight and to add our witnesses? Can I refer members to a briefing paper from SIA at page 528 of your packs and a briefing paper from the Northern Ireland Teaching Council and tabled papers? Can I welcome Arvid Farner, interim CEO of SIA? I think Amanda Swan, temporary director of examinations. I also thought I was welcoming Tommy O'Reilly, chairperson for SIA, and Michael McCauley, business manager for uh, SIA. But Margaret, you may or may not be able to correct me in that regard. And I'll hand over to you given our short time this morning and apologize for that. We're really grateful for your time. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Chair. Um, I think we've got Michael McCauley perhaps waiting in the background. Um, so I don't know if it's possible to let him in. Um, and apologies, Mayor O'Reilly is, is running a little late from another engagement, so I think he will join us, um, but um, I, I can maybe start with the opening statement. But here he is. Um, right on you. <laughs> uh, Sorry, Chair. You're okay. You're okay. Um, and I'm sure, I'm sure your statement will be very concise, but just in case it isn't, um, if, you could, if you could keep it as, as brief as possible, that would be brilliant. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Okay, so let's get started then. So look, I'll have a report on each of the areas and get over and done with it, and then we'll get into the questions. Okay, so since we last met on the 2nd of June, we've continued to work on the five-step process for the summer 21 awarding arrangements. And I can confirm that all A-level AASs, GCSEs, and other qualification grades were submitted by respective deadlines. By the 4th of June, we received over 232,000 grades, an immense achievement and testament to the hard work of the teaching professionals. Other key work included training sessions in terms of further review stage. Last Friday, we commenced the final stage of step four, which is the awarding of the grade processes, and this will continue to be our focus towards the issue of results on the 10th and 12th of August, 2021. In terms of step five, which is the post-results service, right? at our last meeting, we provided a high-level overview of the two stages of the post-results service, and that we plan to release the information by 7th of June. I can confirm that the result of the post-results service process for head center guidance was published on the 7th of June, alongside the center policy template, and a detailed student and parent guide on the service. The free post-results service will open from Tuesday the 10th of August, in line with the release of the AS and A-level results. A priority pizza service will also be available to the students that are awaiting the university place. To further support this process, this year we've completed an extensive training program for 225 examination officers from all Northern Ireland schools and colleges, as well as independent reviewers. We've continued our ongoing engagement with stakeholders, such as the fortnightly principal update meetings, interaction with students and parents, and regular engagement with teaching unions. This will continue throughout the final stages and in the next year. The committee have also asked for a further update on the center determined grades policies, and I understand that an analysis of the review exercise has been included in your briefing part. Due to the time available, I'll just provide a short summary and my colleagues will be happy to answer any questions. As mentioned in our last meeting, um, as chair, I was pleased to report that all 283 centre-determined grade policies fully complied with the requirements 
letter in the head centre's guidance. To break this down further, 73% met the criteria at the first review, 25% by the second, and the 2% by the third review. There were three main areas that required a small percentage of centres to review their policies. Additional detail on evidence used to determine centre terminal grades, the inclusion of internal deadlines, and no reference to training support and guidance. But overall, the majority of centre policies met the criteria by the first stage, a really successful result. I'd like to take the opportunity to again commend the hard work of the teaching community and also express my appreciation for cooperation and patience that was afforded to SIA as we worked together in the five stages this year. Turning to the Deloitte report, we also asked to provide an update on our target activities and the lessons learned from 2020-21. As the committee is aware, the Department of Education commissioned an independent review of the 2020 awarding arrangements with the report published in January this year. In response to the findings, we developed an action plan with learning incorporated into this year's work where appropriate. I can report today that of the 28 actions, 15 are complete, 13 are ongoing. These ongoing actions primarily relate to continuous work that include engagement with stakeholders, communication, guidance and support. Activities that we will continue until the Summer 21 series is complete. There's a lot of detail included in the written briefing for the committee and we will be happy to provide any further detail in our responses. In terms of the 2022 awarding arrangements, um, at our last meeting, the 2nd of June, we set out the key elements of the assessment arrangements, the options available, and how students' overall grades will be awarded. Since then, we have released a short video, an example for students setting out how this will work in practice. Further support materials and subject level guidance will be released by 1 September 2021. Sure, we're further ahead in terms of assessment arrangements than other jurisdictions, and we hope this earlier release has helped schools and colleges to prepare for the next academic year. We believe that the arrangements help ensure that no student is disadvantaged and allows SEA to deliver on the Education Minister's plan to turn the public examinations. It would be remiss of me not to acknowledge the feedback and some concerns from schools, from some schools and colleges in relation to the assessment arrangements. We are engaging with teachers at subject level in relation to those concerns and what further support we can provide. However, we continue to be mindful of the public health situation over the next 12 months and what will happen if this was to deteriorate. At the same time, we must ensure safe qualifications retain their value and portability, which enables students to progress to the next stage of their journey. It's important to highlight that our approach to 21-22 is optional. Students have the option to set all units in public health restrictions for net, and they will be awarded the best grade from full completion of the qualification or the alternative rate of required units. There are many more elements to this process, so please do ask any questions you may have. Thank you, Chair, for your patience, and we're happy to respond to any of your questions. Thanks for that, Tommy. We're, I think we've got an absolute maximum of four minutes per uh, member here, so I'll try and be as, as concise as I can. Thank you for that update. Uh, my understanding is that the Minister had pledged to take a look at uh, awarding arrangements for maths, science and languages. Um, there was a concern in relation to the lack of modification in GCSE maths. Has any review or change taken place in relation to that matter? Uh, 
Yeah, I'll, um, I'll kick off with this one. Uh, thank you, Chair. So I, I understand that the Minister has responded to a question on, on this that came through the Assembly questions. Um, so my understanding is that the Minister is satisfied with all the work that SEA has undertaken um, in terms of the arrangements for, for 2022. So that is my understanding of the response from the Minister. Okay. Okay, maybe maybe some other members can ask supplementaries in relation to some of these questions that, that I don't quite have time to do. But the other concerns were in relation to the emission of orals and practicals in languages and sciences. So how has SEA considered and acted on the concerns and advice of subject experts from local universities and schools in relation to the allowed omission of speaking across GCSE, AS and A-level modern languages in summer 22? Yeah, okay. If I, if I start with this one. Um, so, uh, we've, as we said, we've had correspondence from some centres about the emissions and those specific subjects that you mentioned, Chair. Um, however, we have taken a lot of time since the feedback has come in to respond in detail um, to their feedback. Um, I think as we've spelled out in the written briefing, um, I do think the proposals for 2022 are very positive for students taking examinations in Northern Ireland. Um, you know, there is a considerable reduction in assessment, um, while also retaining the confidence of universities across the UK and the South. So it's really important that we manage all the different stakeholders who have a view of the qualification arrangements. And as you know, in legislation, we do need to ensure that our qualifications are considered equivalent to other qualifications taken in the other parts of the UK. Um, so to safeguard the progression opportunities for students in, in Northern Ireland, it's been really important to come up with an arrangement you know, which really has their interests at the heart, and I do think the 2022 proposal will do that. I think when we see other jurisdictions' proposals, and I think England are launching a consultation at the end of this week. I think, again, I hope that the sector and those schools that have written into us will be encouraged by the arrangements that we have in Northern Ireland. And also, I think the fact that we were able to announce the arrangements early enables schools to do their planning and prepare for the next academic term. So overall, I think the arrangements are the right way forward. Okay, and so you, you don't think that... Um there should be modifications to language literature instead, given that the skill of, of writing is covered in other assessment units, whilst speaking is not? No, we don't, we don't think that the omissions uh, should be changed for languages. Um, you know, we did spell out when we were last here all the issues around the public health concerns, all the feedback that we had in the consultation that took place earlier this academic year, all the challenges around conducting those speaking assessments, there is quite a lot of evidence around the stress and anxiety that the oral assessments um, cause students. Um, so, you know, we, we've tried to ensure that the arrangements for 2022 do not need to change later in the year to give schools certainty and enable them to withstand any more disruption. Okay, and you don't think this approach will have an adverse impact on the uptake of modern languages at key transition points? I, I really don't think it will. I mean, we do have a job of work to do with the sector to encourage greater take-up of languages, and I'm really pleased, you know, that I know that we do have the support of the sector and of subject experts from Queen's 
um, to carry on with that work. Um, so it's really important that we continue to take that forward. If students want to do the oral assessments, they absolutely can. And I think our, um, our guidance in the written briefing shows that if, if they take all of the qualification, um, they will be the best guidance from either route. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm over time. So my final concise question is that life, it's my understanding that life and health sciences were permitted to retain practicals, but chemistry, biology, and physics were not. Could you comment on the rationale for that, if that's the case? Yeah, so I, I might bring Michael in here, but I think that the, the issue is really that they are different specifications, so they are structured uh, differently. So with the sciences, it was absolutely um, the right thing to do to um, have the practical assessments as the optional uh, assessment. That does lead to a dramatic reduction um, in assessment time for the sciences without compromising any of the important elements in terms of biology, chemistry, and physics. Um, Michael, I don't know if you want to come in with any other information. Yeah, I, th I think... Chris, on, on that point, the, the, the way the qualifications are structured are very, very different. There are 14 units in the um, A-level uh, life and health science qualification. And a lot the way that the um, A-level chemistry, physics and biology qualifications work, the three units at AS and three units at A2 that are compulsory, that's not the case in life and health sciences where there are an awful lot of optional units. And also as well, the focus of that qualification is very much coursework based. So you're, we're not comparing um, apples with apples in those instances. So it was a case of us allowing um, a retention of a degree of coursework in the life and health science qualification for those very reasons. We wanted to ensure that candidates did have an opportunity to demonstrate their skills in that area. And it does sit apart from the other three in terms of its structure because of the optional routes through the qualification, the optional units, and the number of different specialist units within it. Okay. Allow me to bring in other members. Pat Sheehan, MLA, please. Thanks. Thanks, Chair. Thanks to everyone this morning. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with the principle that a language is nothing unless it's spoken. Uh, and it's... It's puzzling me still that the oral aspect of the, the courses has been omitted. Uh, is, is there any potential that that could be changed in the time ahead? Um, shall I start? And, and might we yes. Yeah, so I think, I think you know, Pat, as, as we've um, outlined, we did receive considerable feedback when we managed the public consultation back in you know, the early part of the academic year around the challenges with uh, assessing a speaking component. And we do have to ensure, I think, that the arrangements that are put in place can withstand further disruption. And we just don't know where this you know, pandemic will go. Um, if we were to omit another unit and then not be able to undertake uh, you know, the speaking components, that would, that would considerably devalue um, the languages qualifications. I really do think that by having an optional unit um, admission policy, students that want to take the, the oral component can, um, and then they can you know, see how they perform and they will automatically get a better grade. Um, and, and of course, with this um, policy, all the content should still be covered and all the skills still need to be covered. And I know that, that college and school leaders do have that message, you know, so I really 
um, don't think that there'll be less teaching of speaking or you know less speaking going on in languages lessons uh, because of this optional unit admission approach. Okay. Well, I mean, it's not, a, it's not a decision I agree with, but I'm going to leave it there for now, given the shortage of time this morning. Can I can I ask uh, officials to elaborate on the appeals process for this year, in terms of the scope for appeal and also the time frame? Because given the deadlines that will face students in terms of admissions to further and higher education, it's important that those time frames and how long the appeals process will take are communicated clearly. Uh, can you tell us what's happening in regard to that? Thanks. Uh, we get Amanda picked up for you. Okay, thank you for that question, Pat. Um, so this year, you know, we have an appeals process. Um, students will be able to appeal on the grounds of an administrative error, either at SEA or in their centre. They can appeal on the basis that their school didn't follow their computer. And I think most importantly, what's different from last year is that they can um, appeal if they believe that there has been an unreasonable academic judgment from their school. Um, I think it's nice to note that um, for this year, you know, the appeals are free for all students. Um, it is a really big plus of the appeal system this year that the academic judgment of their work can be reviewed by SEA um, and that can come to us very quickly and that there is a consistent process across awarding bodies. We do have a priority service operating um, for students who are waiting on university places. Um, this year, um, we have also worked with UCAS to make sure that they can provide us with um, up-to-date live data on students that are not placed or that are waiting on um, the result of one of our reviews in order to get placed. So I think we've taken all steps that we, we possibly can to make that as smooth as possible. We have also um, trained and recruited many more reviewers than we actually believe that we need um, to make sure that we have plenty of flexibility within the system to make sure that we um, hit those dates. So the priority service will open on a level results day um, and I'm confident that we will meet the, the dates for those priority services to make sure that the, the initial appeal is closed out you know, before the UCAS deadlines close. And are you confident that every student will have his or her appeals process finished before the deadline for admissions to universities or for their education? Yes, as long as they um, highlight to us that it is a priority um, review coming through to see it. So our whole, um, our whole um, process structure has been built around, it has to be a no-field deadline, that deadline has to be met. And, you know, and if that means our teams having to work over office time holidays and work weekends, Sundays, you know, that will happen. You know, that it has to be met um, if it's within our power to do it. And that's part of the reason why all the schools have been trained as well. So that they know that those priority cases get pushed to the fore, get pushed to the front, and get in the sales so we can get the get, get them addressed quickly. Okay, thanks for that. Thank you, Chair. Thanks, Pat. Can I bring in Diane Phillips, MLA, please? Um, thank you um, for that. Just one question. I, I may have picked this up wrong. Um, the other. Um, for nations of the United Kingdom, where are they in announcing what they're going to do um, for exam processes in 2022? And are we sure, for example, that the issue that has been highlighted around languages 
um, and the lack of oral examination in languages um, will make our exam results as equally portable as um, they should be right across um, the system. I think particularly in a, you know, for, for people who, who will apply and use that um, for applications um, for different jurisdictions within the United Kingdom. That's uh, the, the, the first element of this. The second element of it, um, last year there was an incredible um, hassle around um, the A-level results, um, the issue of uh, young people not knowing where they're going. Are we sure, are we absolutely sure that the processes that we have in place are adequate to ensure that young people quickly and efficiently will be able to use um, all of uh, their results in clearing um, to get those university places that they will need. Okay, so um, I'll start. So thank you, um, Diane, for those questions. Um, so in terms of the other jurisdictions, um, I think they're still in the process of working it through. I think I can say that safely on behalf of uh, Scotland, Wales and England. I, I know that Wales are... Um, managing feedback at, at the moment, and England is yet to launch um, a consultation, so that will be happening at the end of this week. So if you think about it, you know, in England, school term does finish later than, than here in Northern Ireland, but I think we've probably all noticed um, you know, the concerns in England about teachers not yet knowing what the plan for uh, 2022 uh, is in terms of planning their teaching for the next academic term. So, so it is incredibly positive, I think, that you know, since the 17th of May, we have had clarity on the way forward. Um, school and college leaders were very clear with us that they did want that clarity. Um, in terms of portability, um, we've worked incredibly hard uh, you know, since August, June of last year, uh, to engage with all the higher education bodies, so they're different representative bodies, uh, the professional statutory regulatory bodies, such as the General Medical Schools Council, um, to ensure that they are confident with our approach. And that's why it is really important that we, that we do make sure that these unit emissions um, do not lead to further changes taking place later on in the academic year should there be further disruption, which is why we've taken the care to ensure that it, the units that are put forward for emission uh, you know, are ones likely to be affected by further disruption. And also that really important message about all the content, all the knowledge, understanding and skills still being taught to the best of the ability of all our centres in Northern Ireland. That is also really important in terms of um, ensuring portability. And then on your third point, which was around um, you know, confidence about the A-level grades being able to be used um, in, in the university admissions process and through clearing, um, I think absolutely. We're not envisaging um, any sort of points of disruption um, you know, at our end, we're working very hard to ensure that everything um, is being, you know, well progressed in terms of the issue of results on the 10th of August for A-level. I think it's also fair to say that we're also working with the local universities and also with the Department for the Economy, just to make sure that there are no blockages in the system and those discussions are going on at the moment. Thanks, Diane. That's four minutes if you want to make a quick closing comment. No, it's just um, 
one, I mean, I tend to agree that a language is nothing if it's not a spoken language. Um, and I, I'm, 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 I just need to make sure that um, our um, young people will be able to, and their, and the, their um, achievements will be equally portable across the United Kingdom. If, for example, England decides to go for an oral element of that examination, I think the worst thing that we could do is one, disadvantage our young people, or two, tell them this is the way forward and then change your minds in September or October. I don't want that as a, as a process. So I'm just, you know, that we're, to be sure, to be sure, to be sure, this stage is really the important thing on that one. Thank yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that, Diane. Appreciate that robust question. Can I bring in Daniel McCrossan for no more than four minutes? Thanks. Thank you, Chair, and thank you to our uh, guests today uh, for being with us. Uh, it's good to see you. I'll just go straight to questions. Uh, this committee uh, and many MLAs have been overwhelmed by communication from schools, teachers, parents and pupils complaining about the changes made to the greater warning arrangements for next year. Subjects such as science, maths, geography are being flag flagged up and CA's uh, ju justification for dropping practical science assessments is based upon the prospect of a further deterioration in the public health situation. So with that in mind, is it not the case that the vaccination programme, including the prospect of booster shots, will have been completed well before the assessments will be required? And further to that, this being the case, the disaster uh, that CIA alludes to is really a remote prospect, is it not? And finally, should you not sit down with your colleagues in other jurisdictions uh, uh, similar to what Diane has pointed out and rethink the situation. The fact that you have all made the same per judgment call as you all did last year uh, when you relied on algorithms that failed our children miserably uh, is no real vindication of uh, answer to this stage. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think you know, when we were here last, we, we did talk about you know, the extensive engagement that we had with the sector in coming up with the unit of emissions uh, approach uh, and all the work we've done with principals since last summer and throughout the year. Um, you know, hopefully, Daniel, I've, I've um, clarified that you know, we've taken great care to emit units which we think could be at risk um, next year. We also have to think very carefully about the spread of assessment objectives and not omitting too much of the qualification because that would um, absolutely undermine the value of, of the qualifications in the future. Um, you know, we've heard from UCAS that by the time the GCSE students in 2022 are applying for university um, in, in 2024, there'll be nearly a million um, applicants for university. You know, we've got about 650,000 now. So it, it is really important that we balance the reduction in assessment very carefully uh, with not undermining um, the value of the qualifications. So I do think that we have we have done you know done that in the right way. You know, based on all the conversations we've had with the HG sector um, and with the teaching profession. Uh, you know, I, I, I know that we've also received the, the correspondence that you've probably received, and we will continue to work with those centres to support them. 
Um, Margaret, could I come in there just to a point on the science qualifications? Um, like we we are very well aware of um, you know obviously the success of the vaccination program, um, but I think like over the last number of days, you've seen the number of cases here double. For example, from um, uh, 211 cases on the 28th of June to 420 on the 5th of July. Like we have anecdotal evidence of of. Um, the numbers of children having to self-isolate in schools towards the end of term increasing. And if we even look at, at, at England, there were 375,000 children self-isolating last week, which is one in 20 and, you know, 7,000 in Liverpool alone. So it would be remiss of us to ignore those stats um, for the 2021-22 academic year. Um, the 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 you know, COVID-19 is totally unpredictable, as as we've all seen. But in terms of the sciences, um, Daniel, the with with the removal, and I think particularly a lot of the focus from um, teachers and heads of department and, and the correspondence that we've received has been around double award science. Now, the optional uh, unit for a mission is the practical. Now, that accounts for four and a half hours of assessment. It, you know, it is quite a substantial amount of assessment being removed from the qualification. There are a total of 11 hours within that qualification, and we are allowing schools and students the option to remove four and a half of those um, from the qualification. And it's also important to remember that, like, a double award science is, you know, there are two GCSEs available for that, and there are um, allocations of twice the amount of teaching time for that qualification as well. So we believe it is fair. It allows us to ensure that examinations will go ahead and that we can absorb um, a good degree of disruption next year. And we do think that it is, does give students the opportunity to progress um, because they will have the option to take the practical assessments if indeed they wish. And we are encouraging schools to ensure that they are exposed to the knowledge, skills, and the practical concepts that would be associated with those assessments. Thanks, Daniel. I'm sorry, that, that's four minutes. I have four members for 10 minutes here, so if you can make a really concise closing remark, please. Thanks. Yes. I appreciate you coming in because I was going to say Margaret didn't touch on it, but you've addressed it now. But there are major proposals to change how children are required to isolate, which will reduce the number required to isolate. This is going ahead in England, as already outlined earlier this week. It is a fluid situation. I appreciate there's no blueprint and certainly no nothing to, to, to refer to because it's such an ever-changing situation. But I do know that this is causing huge amounts of concern, and that's been fed back to us as MLAs and certainly as members of this committee. Okay. Thanks, Daniel. Okay. Robbie Butler, MLA, please. Thanks. Robbie, I think you might be on mute. Apologies. Yeah, you can add that to my time. Thanks, Chair. <laughs> I'll go through to the questions. First of all, Margaret, I've communicated with you and you have been in persistence with regard to this issue. So it's regard to special education needs, kids um, who have additional needs. <clears throat> Um, and reasonable adjustments in terms of how they're going to be assessed for their grades. Um, can you just outline to us what guidance was given to the schools? Because I do believe it's schools then that obviously perhaps make those assessments. Um, and you know, how will it be applied to individual pupils? Yeah, okay. Thank you very much, Robbie, for the question. Um, so in the guidance that we launched on the 5th of March, um, we included a section on ensuring that um, access arrangements uh, could take place 
in, in the usual way. Uh, we also uh, launched our technical questions and answers, uh, which we kept really as a live document. So as we received more questions uh, from, from teachers and, and school and college leaders, we updated the guidance. So there are a significant number of examples in that technical Q&A guide um, demonstrating how uh, reasonable adjustments could be made and access arrangements. Um, as you know as well, I think, Robbie, we've um, had fortnightly sessions with the principals uh, since December. Uh, so we've been able to respond to any questions that they have had throughout the process. Um, and in terms of, of the numbers of um, access arrangements recorded, I'm, I'm pleased to say that you know, the numbers are very similar to any other year. Um, when we would hold examinations. So, um, so I do think uh, that that area of the process has uh, gone smoothly. Can I just in there as yeah. well, Margaret? Yeah. Um, Robbie, access arrangements is such an important area. You know, for schools, we actually provide yearly training on that to examination officers and anyone else who requires it to make sure that they understand the full range of access arrangements that are available, including modifications to examination papers, for example, in real. Um, and also then, you know, the access arrangements that can happen while assessments are happening. So it, it is an area that gets focused every year, regardless of whether there's a pandemic or not. And, you know, examination officers would be really well versed in those areas with guidance from ourselves and also guidance from um, JCQ. And it's the same guidance that is going out across all um, awarding organisations. Yeah, no, no problem, and I appreciate that. And it is good work over the years, just like this year, I think, in terms of the impact on um, our young people and children, uh, those probably with the maybe perhaps were affected more. And I just wanted to make sure that, that it's robust uh, and, and its application is, is fair and that, that schools have that. And the second question, then, um, Chair, um, the Minister alluded to additional support, um, particularly around subjects like mathematics, uh, I believe. So, um, have there, has there been anything created, constructed with regard to um, additional support uh, for examinations? And if so, uh, what was it and who was consulted in the construct? Okay, so, yeah, yeah, so um, the, the instruction was that we would produce um, some sort of aid um, for students doing maths. Now, the one that was put out for last January was turned around really quickly, so now we've had more time to think about it. So yeah. we have taken feedback from teachers. We have met, which I think is most importantly, with a subgroup of um, GCSE math students that would be have just done year 12 and the ones that are doing year 11 and um, to actually look at ideas to make that aid as user-friendly as possible. So we're actually working on working up a like sample one um, to go back to that same group of individuals, hopefully to have that reviewed. So we are doing as much as we, we humanly can um, to make sure that aid is as user-friendly as possible for the students. Brilliant, that would be useful. I think in terms of closing that circle, getting back to those um, that were consulted would be really useful. If, if, uh, I know you've said that, so that would be, that's good to hear. Thank you very much, guys, and thank you, Chair. Thanks, Robbie. Three minutes, 58 seconds. Outstanding. <laughs> I'll start for Robbie Butler today. Okay. Uh, Nicholas Brogan, MLA, please. Thanks, Chair. I'll try not to do Robbie here, too. Um, Thanks everybody for your presentations there. Just, I want to make one quick comment about the um, oral exams, that part being removed from GCSEs. I've heard the same calls from lots of teachers and students and it does put many at a disadvantage and even the teachers unions have said the same thing. So I think it's something that does need to be addressed, but I'll not dwell on it because I know we've already discussed it. Like, um, 
one topic I want to kind of focus on is about schools and colleges and the kind of resources or capacity they have. Do, do you think they have the capacity to um, process? Like, probably it was likely going to be multiple appeals within the um, time frame that was discussed already. I think, um, Nicola, when we have been designing that process, um, we have tried to make it as simple as possible for schools to make sure they can turn them around really quickly. We have provided really clear um, guidance of the parameters of what schools have to do. We provided templates um, for what the schools have to do. We have provided um, you know, sample policies for schools for what they have to do. So the actual element of the skill check should be very straightforward and quick because in essence what the schools are checking are they have not made any administrative errors and they have followed their own procedure. Um, now the work will actually move to see it when we um, we will have the opportunity then to consider that if academic judgments were reasonable or not on campus work. So, uh, you know, a huge part of the workload has moved from the schools, what would have been in schools last year, over to see it. But I think that is the right thing to do because we can then independently review um, the academic judgments made in the school or any other issues that shouldn't might face there. And just to add, I mean, we've had very positive feedback from teacher unions that they think the preparation for the post results service has gone very well. Um, so they're not anticipating um, a lot of burden in the summer holidays, which is which is really positive. So hopefully, you know, SIA will pick up uh, the work there. And, and Nicola, the Minister for Education has previously made an announcement about some additional resources required for schools. To help them with the appeal process if necessary. So there's a number of measures all being built in place to support schools through this process. That's good. Tommy, I'm glad that there are the resources will be made available. And um you're right, Mark, the unions have been positive about that and that, that's a good that is a positive thing. So not to be pessimistic, but um do you think that schools and colleges, maybe not if you're FC are going to kind of take the lead on this, but do you think they should, schools and colleges should have contingency plans in place in case, um, in, in the case of parents might kind of take legal action against the school because of either delays to appeals or because they weren't, the outcome affected a child's uh, place within a university or meaning they didn't get a place within a university? I mean, I think the process is designed that it should um, help ensure that the appeals are progressed as quickly as possible. I think there is protection to schools this year, you know, if there is uh, a legal challenge. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully SEER can help resolve any issues that arise. You know, it was very difficult last year because it, it wasn't based on evidence. You know, the grades weren't based on evidence. But I do get the sense from uh, centres that they do feel... Uh, more comfortable with the arrangements this year and have, have confidence in the system. And can they be confident then that they have your backing as well? That they don't need their own contingency plans? Uh, well, I think, I think they believe that the system has been designed in a fair way. So students have that um, you know, fair opportunity to challenge their grades, but they can see that SEER will also be fair in terms of how we work with uh, the information put forward by centres. I mean, the reality is the skills will do their bit. We just check in the admin and check in that procedures have been followed, and then that passes to see it. And from that point on, it's see decisions about whether you know the admin's right, whether the procedures have um, been followed, and then obviously if we're looking at the academic judgment piece too. So I, I do think we are taking a lot away from schools this year in, in terms of the responsibility for um, 
you know, saying work through, which I think is a good thing. And there, you're, yeah. you mean, Schools will be concerned, will always be concerned that they're going to face legal challenges. Okay. All we can do is ensure that they feel that they're being supported and the right processes are in place. And that's what we're doing. And we're working with them very closely. Hopefully, that that issue will not materialise as an issue for them. Okay. Nicole. Yeah. Hopefully, not a giant, but um, no, that, that does sound positive. So thanks for that. Yeah. Thanks, Nick. Justin McNulty, please. Sure, thanks folks. Okay, back, back to the languages uh, piece, uh, teachers, principals, pupils, students, speakers are gobsmacked at the decision to remove the oral aspect of the languages assessments. Um, and you've said you've had support in this decision from QUB and UU. I'm just a bit concerned about that statement. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure that stands up. Because I don't think there has been any, any academic support for that decision. Folks, you just clarify that for me, please. Yeah, I'll, I'll come in there, Justin. So I, th I think I mentioned universities uh, support the approach. So we do have to think about 144 universities that operate across the UK um, and, and then the other universities that operate in the South. Um, we work very closely with, with the team uh, that manage admissions in, in QUB, but obviously there's a separate department that oversees modern languages. Um, and I know that that team has been really concerned about the take-up of languages, and they, they have written uh, to SIA um, with their concerns. They were worried, I think, that the optional unit admission being the oral unit could have a detrimental effect on the taking of languages. But we have um, you know, taken the time to, to work with those colleagues to explain to them you know, the rationale for that unit being the unit that was put forward for admission. It is an optional admission. Students can continue to take the oral assessment and they will get the better grade of either route. Um, and we're really keen to work with that team in terms of uh, encouraging the take-up of languages. You know, there's so much work that we want to be doing in terms of Key Stage 3. You know, we've got some exciting projects around um, you know, assessment and quizzes to get young people excited about languages, looking at vocational um, languages, qualifications, and the important employment uh, pathways that languages provide. So we do, I hope, as soon as we can move on from COVID, really need to put our energy in, into that work with all the, um, you know, the expertise that we have um, in terms of languages in Northern Ireland. Okay, I'm all for getting children and young people excited about languages. Um, I'm still trying to comprehend the rationale behind the decision to remove the oral element of the assessment on languages because if you can't speak a language, what's the point in having this? You know, you know your verbs, you can know all the grammatical details, but if you don't know how to speak it, it's irrelevant. Um, and just, just tell me, what was the rationale for removing the oral part of the language assessment? Is it um, the TAJ guidance, or what was the rationale? Yeah, so again, again, I guess, just to come, I know Michael wants to come in, yeah. just to come back to the really important point that speaking will obviously still be taught as part of languages. That is yeah. absolutely essential. So, you know, we would obviously expect languages uh, lessons to be conducted in, in the relevant language. Um, so, you know, in terms of the feedback that we had uh, earlier on in the academic year, there were huge logistical issues with the 
uh, conducting the oral assessments, you know, concern about learners who come from disadvantaged backgrounds in particular, being able to perform well in those oral assessments. Um, and, and we've had to ensure that the arrangements for 2022 can withstand any further disruption next year. So that's why um, it, it was, it's the oral assessment and also ensuring that important point that other colleagues made earlier on, we do need to ensure these qualifications are portable and credible. So, um, but Michael, I think, will come on as well. Yeah, Justin, I think it's important to note that the decisions around languages has really evolved. Last year, when we actually had our consultation in uh, September um, about assessment arrangements for this summer prior to cancellation of exams, we had actually proposed that there would be no emissions in the languages qualifications. Now, we obviously then were inundated with a lot of um, correspondence from schools, from teachers, from parents who were very, very frustrated that the languages qualifications weren't um, having any options of an admission applied and the overwhelming suggestion from them was actually the oral or the speaking assessments. Now, over uh, last October, what we did was we announced that they would actually um, be assessed via endorsement, so it would be a teacher assessed component, but again, um, the, you know, schools were very, very frustrated with that. Um, it limited access to grades um, because that is an untiered unit. So this time round, it was very much a case of us, okay, we want to ensure that we can deliver qualifications next year and can withstand a deterioration in the public health situation, but we are very conscious of um, the uh, demand within the system that they can still do oral assessments if they wish. We have absolutely accommodated that with these arrangements um, and given schools the option to assess um, the, the speaking element if they so wish and if a candidate does wish um, to be assessed within that. I think it's also important to note as well, like with, with you know, the, the, obviously the, the, the closure of schools from March to June last year and also as well from January to Easter this year, like a lot of the, one of the comments coming through in last year's consultation was the fact that the children were going to be out of practice of speaking because it is primarily done in the classroom, would that then affect their performance in an assessment? So it is very, very um, uh, important that we take all those um, viewpoints on board. And also as well, like we, we, we have had, and, and it's important to acknowledge, we have had positive feedback from schools about the decision we've taken around rurals, where it is accepting, they completely understand the approach that we're taking and the reasons that we're taking it. Okay. Justin, I'm going to have to interrupt. Apologies. I, I think our uh, Starleaf uh, capacity is going to draw to a close here. Apologies. Um, thanks for those robust questions. The clerk will obviously follow those up in written format as well. Do you want to try a concise closing comment, Justin? Uh, well, the, the reduction in content for Irish in terms of the oral aspect, it doesn't stand up because there's no reduction in GCSE math, for example. Um, because it doesn't follow through that students can study maths and then move into A-level would not have reached the base level they needed to do A-level maths. So it's just there's, there's inconsistencies there, guys, which um, don't really stand up to scrutiny. So, Trevor, so maybe we'll do, Chair, in the interest of time, we'll write back to Justin on that issue in terms of that specific question around the maths. And yes. And Okay, um, thanks very much indeed uh, to see your witnesses today. We'll obviously be engaging with you on, on these issues uh, at a future date as well. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chair. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
And as we stand to be broadcasting to remove witnesses, add members back into the spotlight to allow me to close the meeting. Uh, any other business members? No. Enjoy okay. the rest of you. Yeah, our next meeting is Wednesday, the 8th of September, uh, Starleaf at 9.30 a.m., and we'll consider whether to uh, facilitate that in hybrid format as well. Thank you, members. Cheers, guys. The meeting does not adjourn.